the show. Um, So today is the day that we talk about America's dad finally um, trying to draw a distinction between himself and Elizabeth Warren. That happened. I'm going to show you the video. Um, Really, really interesting stuff. We also have an update on Syria. The View takes on Rand Paul. They spoke about taxes, they spoke about war, they spoke about a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I got the stuff on war here because it's, uh, it's really interesting how almost overnight the View hosts uh, decided to turn into neoconservatives. And then um, later on in the show, I'll give you the roadmap to success to actually change the nature of the political system in this country. Um, you know, I was tweeting about this yesterday, and... Sometimes I get stuck in my own head, so I kind of naively assume that everybody knows what I'm talking about and understands the strategy, but, I mean, I don't know why anybody would. I haven't really laid it out specifically in a long time, if ever, so I want to give you the exact roadmap to change that I think is uh, so important. And then um, I got Mayor Pete in today's show, Joe Biden. It's a lot, man. It's a lot. I'm going to explain. uh, We have a constitutional scholar explaining what he thinks will happen with impeachment moving forward. And Fox Business Network is going to troll Democrats about the movement to no longer be corrupt. And later on, Kylie Jenner is in the show somehow. Um, Spoiler, it's because she's insanely, preposterously, absurdly rich and wealthy and uh, shouldn't make as much money as she does. (laughs) And I'd love to see people argue with me on that point, because if you do, 
Goodness gracious. Okay, so without further ado, let's get started. And I'll queue up the uh, Bernard Sanders video here. Here we go. So Bernie Sanders made a little distinction here between himself and Elizabeth Warren. Um, there's a reason why he's doing it. The polls show recently that Elizabeth Warren has indeed surged. Um, she actually has knocked off Biden for leading the real clear politics average of national polls. So it shows that something's happening here. There is movement. Biden's going down. She's going up. Bernie's kind of flatlined. Um, recently, he's dropped a little bit. Now, that's not the end of the world because, again, we're still a long ways off. So there's a lot that can change between now and then. If you remember, Kamala Harris had her moment in the sun where everybody thought, oh, my goodness, she's going to be the nominee. And then uh, she fell off a cliff after Tulsi introduced her to the underside of a bus. Um, so it ain't over, man. But Elizabeth Warren at this point in time is surging. Now, thankfully, in some of the early states, uh, Bernie is still doing very well. I saw a poll yesterday, for example, that uh, basically had all three of them tied in Iowa. Um, I'm not sure what the average is for Iowa and New Hampshire, but I know that, um, at least in some of the recent polls, Bernie's tied. So it's not necessarily panic time yet, but it is time to make a distinction. I understand they had a ceasefire. I understand they have a ceasefire. I understand that in any Elizabeth Warren administration, Bernie Sanders gets a cabinet position. I understand that in any you know, uh, Bernie Sanders presidency, Elizabeth Warren gets a cabinet position. I understand that they're friends. I get all of that. But you are running in a Democratic primary. And especially with her surging, you do need to draw distinctions. You can't just present this as like, oh, we're all really good candidates. And, uh, you know, it's just gentlemen's disagreements that we have. And, you know, you pick the flavor, you pick the variety. No, you have to show if you're Bernie Sanders that you're, you know, uniquely suited to this job. And he hasn't done that to this point. So now he's going to begin to make the case. Let's see the first shot across the bow. So let me ask you, you and Elizabeth Warren have pretty close to identical positions on, 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 on the big issues. What, what do you say to those who say that they would pick her because she's eight years younger than you, she didn't just come through this, you didn't just have a heart attack, and, and look, in the positions, you're pretty much the same. Well, look, uh, everybody, every American is going to make his or her own choice about the candidate that they want, and Elizabeth Warren has been a friend of mine for some 25 years, and uh, I think she is a very, very good senator. Uh, but there are differences between Elizabeth and myself. Elizabeth, I think, as you know, has said that she is a capitalist through her moans. I'm not. I think the situation today that we face in this country of the greed and the corruption uh, that is existing in Washington, that is existing uh, at the corporate elite level, where you have massive amounts of price fixing going on in the drug companies, where we're the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people, where we have right now as we speak in the fossil fuel industry. You got companies making billions of dollars a year in profit doing what? Oh, by the way, they're destroying the planet. All right. And I think business as usual 
and doing it the old-fashioned way is not good enough. It's not regulation. Now, what we need is, in fact, I don't want to get people too nervous, we need a political revolution. I am, I believe, the only candidate who's going to say to the ruling class of this country, the corporate elite, enough, enough. With your greed and with your corruption, we need real change in this country. So you don't think that's what Elizabeth Warren is Well, uh, uh, Elizabeth is a friend of mine. She will speak for herself. I just but, 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 but you have said there are differences, and, and, you, well, just, difference and, and is, you just mentioned a label. Well, I guess, well, it's not a label. I mean, Elizabeth considers herself, if I got the quote correctly, to be a capitalist to her bones. I don't. And the reason I am not is because I will not tolerate for one second the kind of greed and corruption and income and wealth inequality and so much suffering that is going on in this country today, which is unnecessary. She's built her campaign about having a plan for everything, but she hasn't put out a health care plan yet. Again, you, Elizabeth is a friend of mine. Talk to her. I have put out a health care plan. It's called Medicare for All. We're going to tell the insurance companies and the drug companies that we will not continue this current dysfunctional and cruel system. Okay, so it's very good that he's now making a distinction between himself and Elizabeth Warren. Because, again, that needs to be done. That's the positive. The negative is I don't like this particular line of argument. Now, I understand people in my Twitter feed, I'm in lefty Twitter world, and everybody's, everybody's loving what he's saying there, but my message to them is you got to stop dating yourself because we're trying to take this message and win an election. And so we can't just be in our little, you know, cool, edgy subgroup here. We have to try to expand beyond the people that we already agree with. So when Bernie says, hey, she's a capitalist to her bones, I'm not – 65% of Americans still favor capitalism. That is not the argument I would use. Also, beyond that, labels are irrelevant, man. People don't know about labels, don't care about labels. Uh, You know, what that entails is not perfectly clear to everybody. It's too cerebral. It's too, you know, too much of a layer removed from the actual conversation. So I would not go with this line of attack anymore. I think that as Elizabeth Warren listened to this, she maybe cracked a smile. I don't think it was a particularly uh, visceral attack that gets to the heart of the disagreements. And by the way, that's my theory of, of, of change, and that's my theory of um, how to argue, is you've got to go with a visceral attack that cuts right through and is crystal clear and hits on some primitive base level. So, for example... What's, what are some of the things Bernie can say? Well, Elizabeth Warren voted for Trump's military budget. You don't defeat Trump by handing him a blank check to do illegal wars. That cuts through. It's not cerebral. It's not up in the air. It's not label humping. It's she agrees with Trump. You, all you Democratic voters, hate Trump. She signed off on Trump's illegal and offensive wars, gave him more money than he even wanted for the military. You can't say he's some lunatic, thin-skinned buffoon who shouldn't be anywhere near the red button and then say, let's give him a larger, more powerful military. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. Also, foreign policy is the area where the President of the United States has the most direct 
sway because you're the commander in chief. She's not so much on foreign policy. She's got nothing. She's got nothing. She's not for real change on foreign policy. That's how you hit her. That's how you hit her. Why do you agree with Trump on the military? Why did you give him a blank check to do illegal and offensive wars? That's not very progressive. This is how you, okay, uh, let me give you another one. Again, it's got to be, and, and this is something that drives me crazy, is people on the left need to learn how to get your goddamn point out, too. There's another thing. This isn't necessarily a problem with Bernie. I've seen it, see it more in other uh, areas on the left. Get your point out. Stop beating around the bush. Get your point out. Get your point out. So you need to be able to fit it. And this is what Trump was so good at, is that he was able to just fit whatever his attack was in a little quick soundbite. And that lands. That gets into people's heads. I know you like listening to the sound of your own voice, but people are not necessarily going to be following along. They'll get lost real quickly. So, uh, you know, here's another one. I want to eliminate all student loan debt. She doesn't. Policy-based but cuts right through. I want to eliminate all medical debt. She doesn't. She needs to explain to you why it's okay that 500,000 Americans go bankrupt because they don't have access or, excuse me, 500,000 Americans go bankrupt because of medical bills. This all, stuff like this cuts right through. Another one. I never had to take a pledge to stop taking big money because I never took big money. She just took a pledge to stop taking big money. But she transferred big money from her Senate campaign into her presidential campaign. Now, I've seen people obfuscate on this point recently where they're like, yeah, but Bernie transferred money too. Bernie transferred money... That wasn't big money. <laughs> There's a giant difference. Like, that's the whole crux of the disagreement, is that she went around all these wealthy liberal elite circles and raised big money and then transferred that money into the general election. That's, uh, there's a giant difference between that and transferring money that you raised from mailmen. Like, giant difference. So you could hit her on that. I didn't need to take a pledge to stop raising big money because I never took big money. She came out and decided uh, Tuesday that big money is wrong. I didn't need to evolve. I'm already there. I mean, again, this is how you attack. Okay, you want one more uh, argument? I'll give you one more argument here. And this one, uh, this one, I'll grant you, is not as hard-hitting as the others because it's, it requires a little more explanation. The others are super to the point, super quick, and cuts right through and says, here's the difference. But if I was Bernie, I would say this. Elizabeth Warren praised the most conservative Democrat in the Senate, Joe Manchin and said, let me make a spirited defense of Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is going to block every reform that would fix this country. Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, so on and so forth. We need to defeat Joe Manchin. Not snuggle up with him. Because we're going to get no change if Joe Manchin doesn't do the right thing. So Elizabeth Warren, in her heart of hearts, is an incrementalist. I am not. I am for big change, and I'm for it today. Again, that one's a little too wordy. You've got to shave it down a little bit, perhaps. And people, granted, don't know who Joe Manchin is, so you're going to have to lay it out a little bit more. But bottom line is I think these are the attacks that cut through more. I think that she agrees with Trump on the military. She's given him more money for illegal offensive wars. Blank check. Blank check. She gave him a blank check for that stuff. That cuts through student loan debt, medical debt, that cuts through, transferring big uh, donor money, that cuts through, and I don't think that this is the right way to go about it. 
You don't say, oh, she's a capitalist to her bones. I'm not. Well, I'm sure she's devastated at the fact that you just handed over 65% of the country to her. I get it. In lefty Twitter world, they go, ah, yes, Bernie got her. But again, 65% of the country is not anti-capitalist. So you don't lean into your opponent's strength. <laughs> you don't do that. That's not how you argue. Um, so it's good he's making the distinction. He needs to sharpen it. And he needs to be direct. And I don't know if he's going to do that. Bernie Sanders is genuinely a nice person. He genuinely does not want to confront, especially his friends. I mean, he really likes Elizabeth Warren, and she really likes him. Um, so he's going to be hesitant to make these direct attacks. But that's the only way he wins. <laughs> the only way he wins is if he does that. That's how you do it. I mean, again, I, to bring up the example of Trump, he ran against the entire Republican Party. And he painted them all as corrupt status quo, business as usual people. There's no way Bernie's going to manage to topple the entire Democratic establishment without doing the same. It's just not going to happen. You can't paint it as like, oh, there's different flavors and varieties of Democrat up here, and you can pick which one you like. No, you have to be like, no, I'm the only option if you really want to get change. The only one. The only one. And you have to be crystal clear to the point and quick with that. And you need airtight arguments that she cannot BS her way out of. You want any, any argument against her, you want to be able to fit it into a quick little soundbite, and you want her to have to talk for three minutes to try to wiggle her way out of it. Because that's how you'll know you won. Because she's going to be lost in her own world trying to rationalize something, and you just hit her one, two, three real quick. Like the, you agree with Trump on the military budget, why are you giving him a blank check for offensive wars? The most draconian, barbaric aspect of his policy, and you agree with it. You agree with it. And then she'll There was money that was important, that was part of that, that was in the with body armor for the troops. That's that's the exchange you win. Now I don't know if he'll do it because these are sharp criticisms. It's a sharp criticism. To say, oh, great, you agree with Trump on his worst aspects. That's a sharp criticism. <laughs> That's a very sharp criticism, but it's true. So, uh, anyway, it's good he's making the distinction. He has to do it more going forward. But you got to come correct, man. You do. Because you're flatlining, she's ascending, and what she's successfully managing to do, very successfully managing to do, is she's getting many of the old Clinton supporters, Hillary Clinton supporters, they're somehow accepting of her, which, by the way, makes no sense, and it shows you that the Clinton people are not ideological. They're not. Uh, many of them are very identity politics-driven, and they want the female uh, next, the first female president, and they're willing to go on board with somebody who massively disagrees ideologically with Hillary Clinton. Um, but she's getting them, and then also she is managing to chip away and get enough genuine lefty support where she's building a, a strong coalition here. So we know Bernie's never going to get those, uh, you know, most of those Hillary people on his side. So what you have to do is show that you're the real uh, transformational candidate. You're the real one running on change and make it incredibly digestible and simple how strong those disagreements are, how deep the divide really is. Because I don't think uh, this is the kind of argument that, you know, is a nail in the coffin for her. In fact, I think when she heard this, she smiled a little bit and said, oh, wow, you got me. <laughs> Oh, I'm I 65% of the country's with me. Wow. So 
it's funny because if you really look at the, you know, if you go issue for issue with the polls and you compare Bernie to Elizabeth Warren, on virtually every issue where they disagree, Bernie's got the more popular position. But he led with an argument where she has the majority support. Keep making the distinction, get sharper, get quicker, get more specific, and get serious, because that's what's needed. All right, next. So let me give everybody an update on what's happening in Syria. Of course, uh, Trump announced recently that we will be withdrawing from northern Syria. And um, the fallout has been something else. Pretty much immediately when he announced that, we had uh, a Turkish invasion of Kurdish territory in Syria. And um, there's been war crimes committed. There's been murders. Apparently there's stories of Turkish troops flanking the U.S. troops, and which, you know, is a very scary thing. So it's been... Uh, it's been wild to see the fallout from that announcement from Trump. Now, here's one of the things that we learned recently. The Hill says, Pentagon chief confirms Trump ordered larger withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria. Now, my first reaction when I saw that was, oh, that's good, because I thought that meant not just northern Syria, the rest of Syria. But no, I clicked the link and I read through, and he, what he did is he ordered a larger troop withdrawal, specifically from that region in northeastern Syria, and uh, the reason why was there were reports that the Turkish troops were, like, flanking the U.S. troops, which is scary because, well, you want an attack on Turkish troops against U.S. troops? You want to talk about an international crisis? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, so he, would, he ordered further withdrawal from northeastern Syria. That doesn't mean in other parts of Syria that we're getting out. It was in that specific region. Um, so... You know, it's really bizarre that he calls for a withdrawal, but it's only in this very particular region of Syria. And in this particular region of Syria, the very U.S. presence there for an extended period of time really just served as a buffer between the Turks invading Syria, taking over Kurdish territory, and really trying to take out the Kurds. Because there's a longstanding, obviously, um, hatred there between uh, Turkey and the Kurds. They consider them all terrorists, all these Kurds terrorists, and so they have no problem going in there and wiping them out. Um, now, the other thing is there were about 950 ISIS fighters that have now been freed, that have now been released. The Kurds were guarding them, and then the Turks came in, and apparently uh, they, they let them go. I don't know how else they get out. I mean, maybe ISIS just kind of breaks out. But yeah, I think it's much more likely the Turks freedom. And this kind of goes to a point that a lot of people have been making for a long time, including myself, that uh, Erdogan 
just like the U.S. and just like Saudi Arabia, is more than willing to use jihadist help to further his own goals. Um, so you have this like Turkish and jihadist alliance, and then that is happening at the same time now that the Kurds decided, well, we don't want to get you know wiped off the face of the planet and be the victims of ethnic cleansing, so they made a deal with the Assad government. So again, the Hill says, Justin, Kurds say they will work with Assad's forces to fend off a Turkish invasion. Now, a lot of people will hear that in the West, and they'll be, like, outraged by it. But what everybody needs to understand is these Kurds – now, I believe in a free Kurdistan, by the way. I think we should have a free Kurdistan. But these Kurds, as of right now, they're Syrian Kurds. And so for the Syrian government to come and protect Syrian Kurds from a Turkish invasion, I file that under common sense. I file that under, well, what, like, what was supposed to happen? Was uh, the U.S. pulls out. Granted, we should have never been in there in the first place, but we pull out. There is a green light for Turkey to come in and do whatever the hell they want to the Kurds. They do that. What are, we, what are we supposed to do? Tell the Kurds, no, you must suffer on your own and don't make a deal with your own government to protect your behind. Of course they're going to go to the Assad government. Of course they're going to do that. They're technically Syrian Kurds. And they're going to say, hey, we may have massive, massive problems with the, with the Assad government, but they're not about to ethnic cleanse us this second, <laughs> so let's get their help to defeat the Turks and to push the Turks back. And so that's what we're seeing happen uh, right now, right this second. They made a deal with them, and they're allowing in Syrian government forces, and they can now, you know, push back uh, the Turks. But that, you know, leads to a bigger question of what happens if you have just flat-out fighting between Turkish forces and Syrian forces. I mean, there's been a Syrian civil war going on for a long time, but now is it going to be, like, directly, like, Erdogan versus Assad? Turkish military versus Syrian military. I mean, it really is just a, an absolute mess happening right now. Um, and then the final update here that I want to show you is this. Furious Republicans prepare to rebuke Trump on Syria. Now, honestly, stop and think. When have they done this before? When have the Republicans said, you know what, man, you've gone too far? Answer, they haven't done that. They'll defend Trump come hell or high water. That's what they'll do. That's who they are. But the one time that they go, oh, we're going to officially rebuke him on this, it's when he's withdrawing troops from somewhere. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, I think this is a massively complicated situation. I think you could argue with Trump specifically in the way that he went about this, but it is quite telling that the one time that they go, how could you say? Is when he's withdrawing troops from somewhere. None of them care that we were there illegally in the first place. They was against U.S. law, against international law, violating Syrian sovereignty. Nobody cared about that. They were just, yeah, whatever, go do what you want, and we're, we'll support it. But when he withdraws troops, they're, no, you must send them back. Now, thankfully... They're also talking about something that's actually reasonable, and the reasonable thing is what to do now moving forward. And the answer is you've got to take you know, diplomatic and economic action against Turkey, uh, and that's all we could do at this point in time. 
so you can cut off the arms deals, you know, stop the weapons from going in there. Um, you can question their status in NATO, and you can do direct sanctions of Erdogan and direct sanctions of um, the Turkish government. So that's the other part of this, which I think is actually a positive thing and I think makes perfect sense. But the rebuke on the withdrawal is just, it drives me crazy because these people simply do not care that we do illegal and offensive wars all the time, and we're in Syria illegally right now. They never cared about that. To them, the crisis is only with the withdrawal. It wasn't going there in the first place. Because that's the reality of the situation, guys. We should have never been in there, there in the first place. Ever. That's not... We, we had no business there. We just, you know, whatever you think of what's happening now, and we all agree it's a mess. But we had no business there in the first place, and it was illegal that we went in there in the first place. So, um, I think that's really important to point out, and this is the only time that the Republicans are getting mad at him. Now, Donald Trump is being politically intelligent about this, in that he's going around bragging and saying, I told you I was going to end the wars in the Middle East, but now I'm ending the wars in the Middle East. What do you mean? I campaign on this. I'm just doing it. And his Twitter feed is all like, stop the endless wars, and it's nonstop stuff like that. And, of course, every other political loser in the country is taking the bait. And they're letting him frame the discussion. And so his framing is, I'm anti-war, they're pro-war. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm pro-war, and he's anti-war. That's right. Oh, no. You're helping him for 2020, you losers. That's not how you counter-argue. The real counter-argument is, you only took troops out of northern Syria. And by the way, this was the one place where we actually were providing a buffer from a freaking ethnic cleansing. Okay? But what about the rest of Syria? You're still in Syria. You're still in Syria with thousands of troops. <laughs> like, what do you mean? This is, you're in Syria. You're still in Iraq. You're still in Afghanistan. Okay? We're still bombing eight different countries. Trump increased drone strikes by 432%. It was already bad enough under Obama with high civilian death rates. He surpassed that already. But Obama's eight years versus Trump's been in there, what, three years? Guys, he's escalating to war right this second with Iran, waging economic warfare on Iran, pulled out of the Iran deal. He's seizing shipments of food going into Venezuela. They want to topple that Venezuelan government. They want to do regime change. This guy is not anti-war by any stretch of the imagination. And by the way, so what, what made sense in this region of northern Syria? Like, what, what would I have done if, you know, my administration comes to me, okay, sir, we have to deal with this situation in Syria, what are we going to do? If Donald Trump went to the U.N., okay, and had plans laid out, okay, we're going to pull our troops out of northern Syria, but we're going to have U.N. peacekeepers go in there. And we know, Syria's, uh, we know that uh, Turkey's not going to do anything. They're not going to invade Syria. They're not going to go after the Kurds because we've got U.N. peacekeepers there. They know they can't do that. That's one thing you could have done. Go to the U.N. first, have U.N. peacekeepers there, U.S. troops pull out. It's no longer a unilateral approach. I would have been totally fine with that. I would support that. The other thing is, you go to the Assad government. Listen, I get it. You know, in Washington, they think he's public enemy number one. He's not. You know, ISIS is the real threat. Al-Qaeda is the real threat against the United States. Um, Assad's not going to attack Nebraska or anything like that. Let's be serious. So you go to the Assad government. And you say, hey, listen, man, uh, we're going to pull out of this region, so let's get you and the Kurds to sit down at the table, have some sort of an agreement, and then when the U.S. pulls out, you already have Syrian troops there to deter any Turkish aggression. So that's what I would have done. I, if, you know, because I, I also don't want our troops in Syria. I don't want our troops in any of these places because they're illegal and offensive wars. So what you do is up front you meet with either the Syrian government or the U.N. or both. 
and you say, this is what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pull out. We need somebody to fill the vacuum, somebody to deter Turkish aggression, so on and so forth. And then I would have 100% defended Donald Trump on this front. 100%. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He pulled out, didn't talk to the UN, didn't talk to the Syrian government, didn't talk to his advisors, and then the obvious thing happened, which is he pulled out, the Turks filled the vacuums, and they wanted to destroy the Kurds. So when people are making the claims of, oh, my God, the Turks are trying to do ethnic cleansing, they're correct. They're not wrong. But still, what those, the point that those people are missing is their reaction is, oh, we should have just stayed there forever. No, 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 no. That also disregards the fact that, again, we're there illegally in the first place. So um, it's really annoying because you have the reckless approach of Trump and you have the political stupidity of everybody else who are immediately taking the reflexive opposite position of Trump, that position being, no, we should have just stayed there. No, it's more complicated than that. And, you know, they're feeding directly into his framing of he's anti-war, we're pro-war, and that's just politically incredibly stupid. So, but anyway, this is your update on what's happening in Syria. And, um, you know... Hopefully, the Syrian government is able to deter the Turks and can calm down the situation because what's happening to the Kurds is terrible. Uh, the U.S. has betrayed the, the Kurds many times. And really, the real conversation should have been, you know, negotiations beginning for a free Kurdistan. I understand that's incredibly difficult to do. I understand that Kurdistan would, um, you know, kind of cross over into various different countries. But if anybody deserves it, it's them. I mean, they have... They have really aided in defeating ISIS, as the Syrian government has as well. But they've really aided in uh, defeating ISIS. And also, there's a pretty radical democratic experiment going on um, with certain elements of the Kurds. So anyway, that's your breakdown of it now. It's a mess. <laughs> Everybody's wrong in this situation, just in different ways. Okay, next. So the hosts on The View really channeled neocon Dick Cheney in their debate with Rand Paul here. There's also a separate part of this conversation that you're not going to see where they talk about taxes. On the issue of taxes, Rand Paul is so beyond full of it, it's ridiculous. He paints the rich as victims. Even though, like we just covered the other day, a new report came out and found that the richest 400 families are paying an effective lower tax rate than the poorest 50% of the country. The rich are not victims. They make all the money and pay very low taxes. Okay, so he's full of crap on the taxes thing. But on this war thing, this is fascinating because... In a reflexive way, because they want to own Trump, you know, the view ladies hate Trump, and even the conservative ones, they hate Trump. So what, are the, what they're going to do is, all of a sudden, take the pro-war position, because Trump is pretending like he's anti-war and doing the whole, I'm withdrawing from the Middle East, even though it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, but let's see their back and forth, and then we'll break it down. 
we talked about his wanting to pull troops out of Syria and everyone saying uh, if we do that, we're abandoning the Kurds. That's not a good idea. And a lot of folks are saying he crossed the line with a bad decision, but you don't say that. Why? You know, one of the things I've always supported about President Trump is actually one of the things I liked about President Obama, that we said we were overextended, that the Iraq war was a mistake. I think it's one of the reasons President Obama beat Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton had supported the Iraq war. I still think the Iraq war, regime change in the Middle East, and these wars are senseless. So does President Trump. He doesn't want to get us involved in another Iraq war in Syria. If anything, Syria is more complicated. The other is a practical concern. You have 50 soldiers. They're talking about moving 50 soldiers. Who goes to war with 50 soldiers? You have 50 soldiers and tens of thousands of Turkish troops amassing. The Turks are also allies. The Free Syrian Army were our allies for seven years. They're allied with the Turks. The Kurds have been our allies. The Kurds, in all likelihood, are now going to be allies of Assad to try to carve out a place in Syria for themselves. It's a really complicated question. I guess from my perspective, I say, any of these people out here, their kids have to go to war. War's not a chess game. People lose their limbs and people die, and I think it's the least we owe to the kids that we're going to send to this war. Why are we going to war and who are we fighting? But isn't there so, go ahead. I'm sorry. So if you have allies and they are working with you and fighting with you and 24 hours somebody wakes up and says, nope, we're out, right. is that the right way to do this? I think the way we look at war is we don't look at no, it. No, no. no. Is that answer, the right way to do it? Question. Okay. When we decide whether or not we're sending our young people into harm's way, we should obey the Constitution, which says we should declare war and put them in a war theater. But let me finish. Okay. And here's, here's the thing about it, is if you ask these people, Lindsey Graham and the Cheney War and all these warmongers that want to stay at war forever, who are we going to declare war on? They don't know who. We're going to declare war on Turkey, our ally. Should we ever the walk Army, out ally? in the middle? It's like walking we out. We should never be there in the first place. That's not the question. <laughs> That's all good. But, the left but, agreed but with we're me for in so there. Years. For we're so many years, the left agreed with me. I am neither left nor right. I'm just American. I, I want to know. know, should we be taking agreed in the past the regime change doesn't work. When we got rid of Hussein, we got chaos and more terrorism. When we got rid of Gaddafi, chaos and more terrorism. But, but then we're, we're here now, though. But we're here. Yeah. We're and not we're really here. we got 50 people. We're, we're not here. Yeah, but people frankly, hold on, hold on. And that is why it kept Turkey from invading. Isn't that true? You tell their parents of those 50 kids how great the symbolism was when a suicide bomber blows up all 50 kids. But didn't it keep Turkey from invading? No, no, no. No, no. You tell their the parents. Green light. You tell their isn't parents why they're there. You but tell, isn't that true? You tell their parents why isn't they're there. Isn't it true that Turkey is not invading? We have. How do you feel about invading? So I actually, I find slaughtered. I find the position of pulling out of these wars. That's a popular one, and I am there. There's a difference in having a strategy and leaving the Kurds there to die, which is where they are now. They are left there to die, and that is now. Here's what I argue. Now is it now? That's simply wrong. That's simply wrong. ISIS as being reported, thousands um, are going to escape from these prisons because the Kurds can't protect well, no, themselves. Well, no, that is up that to is, 70, that is the people, to a NATO official. That's the, that's the people who don't like the is policy. That's the people world with that's ISIS people, running around. That's the people who want to stay forever. These are the same people. Well, I don't want to stay forever. Let me but finish answering the question, okay? I let okay. you talk. You okay. let me talk. These are the same people 
These are the same people that would still have us in Vietnam. These are the same people who always say, stay at war, stay at war, stay at war. It has not helped us. We've been in Afghanistan for 19 years. The same people complaining about this. The Cheneys, Lindsey Graham, you know what they say about Afghanistan? It would be precipitous to leave. We've been there 19 years. There's no mission, and I'm not saying one people, more kid. I'm not breaking our word as Americans, of breaking our words to our allies, of having people who risk their lives, who've been there for years. And what message does that send internationally to other allies if we abandon them? I think the only duty we owe and the only oath I take is to the Constitution. I didn't promise to take the country to war. I promised not to take the country to war. So did President Trump, by the way. And the, I mean, so and the Constitution says protecting you from enemies, foreign and domestic. Yeah. And, and there's many of us who feel that this puts us in greater danger because of what it means vis-a-vis no. -vis ISIS. I mean, we don't live, you know, we don't live, we're not alone on this planet. And anybody who tries to make the argument that someone in Syria is a danger to our country is really not paying attention. Oh, I think Assad is in Syria and is a hell of a danger to our country and our world. Well, oh actually, if you look at the war, the war is very complicated. So you had Assad on one side. On the other side, you had Sunni extremists, al-Qaeda and al-Nusra. Mm -hmm. These are the people that have been allied with the Saudi version of Islam that has been promoting Islamism and Islamist strategy around the world and jihadism. That was the side of the world we were fighting. So if that side of the war actually actually won, I think we actually might be in more danger. I don't like Assad, but the other people on the other side are super extremists that I don't like either. How close is too close for Iran to be near Israel? That last point is, what? what? Hold on. So now it's about Israel. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? There's so much there. Anna Navarro really showed how little she knows when at the end... <clears throat> Uh, she said, I think Assad is a danger to our country. You think Assad is a danger to the United States of America. Okay, this is the same person who would say in 2003, I think Saddam Hussein is a danger to our country. He's not. He's not. You could say, oh, he's a danger to his own people. That's fine. He's a danger to us. Not even close. She goes from saying, well, this is going to put us in more uh, trouble vis-a-vis -vis ISIS, and then she goes on to say, well, Assad's a danger to us. But hold on, Assad is fighting ISIS. You know, okay, it's, it's so frustrating. Now, here's why this gets under my skin is I don't think any of these people knew who the Kurds were a month ago. I'm not kidding. I don't think they had any idea. They definitely didn't care if they had any idea, but they probably didn't even have any idea who the Kurds are. Now, all of a sudden, oh, my God, the Kurds. Oh, will the Peshmerga be okay? Oh. It, let's say Donald Trump had done the thing he should have done. So what should, he, what should he have done? Very simply, either go talk to the U.N. When you remove the U.S. troops, immediately have U.N. peacekeepers go in. Then that deters the Turkish aggression. Or... Meet with the, the Syrian government. As soon as the U.S. pulls out, have Syrian forces go, protect their own country, because these are Syrian Kurds, protect their own country, deter the Turkish aggression. If Trump withdrew in an intelligent way, which is the way I just described, one of those two ways, or both, have Syrian uh, forces and U.N. peacekeepers go, they still would have been against it. And that's why this is so frustrating. Because to them, it's just whatever Trump does, no matter what, it's terrible. Now, again, don't get me wrong, there are legit criticisms of this, this because he did kind of like green light Turkey to do whatever the hell they want. I think. I think. 
Now, there's no proof on that, but I, I, it's pretty easy to digest the thought of Trump talking to Erdogan and Erdogan asking him for this. And he's like, sure, I see no problem. I want to end the wars anyway. And then he pulls the troops home. So there are criticisms of Trump here. But my point is, I don't think there's any conceivable scenario where they would have supported the withdrawal. And that's stupid. That's stupid. Because what they're doing is they're buying into the logic of U.S. empire. And the logic is, we're the sole superpower. We run the world. We don't need to follow U.S. law because we're there illegally in the first place. We don't need to follow international law. Again, we're there illegally under international law. We don't have to do any of that. We get to do what we want. And so now, all of a sudden, all the view hosts overnight morph into massive neoconservatives and imperialists. Now, Rand Paul, for all his flaws... He does, to some extent, believe in non-interventionism, and so he's holding it down there. But you'll notice, he's the only one that's making coherent arguments. Again, I think there are criticisms of exactly how Trump went about this. But the underlying idea of we should generally try to bring our troops home, yes. And all of a sudden, they all think that's unreasonable. You know, and he brought up historical examples. I really wish he would have brought up to them and asked them, well, what are you going to say if we pull out of Afghanistan and all of a sudden the Taliban starts fighting the secular forces again? What are you going to say? You're going to say, oh, my God, I can't believe we left. There's fighting now. Why do we leave? What about in Iraq, where let's say we pull out and there's a little bit of an uptick in violence? Then what? What are you going to say? Oh, my God, the poor people in Iraq. You do realize that as a result of the U.S. invasion, there has been way more deaths of innocent civilians. So when you cry crocodile tears now about, oh, my God, the civilians, that rings hollow because in that scenario, it wouldn't wouldn't be our fault. But in the original invasion, it was our fault. We killed minimum 200,000 civilians. Some estimates are over a million. So it's like they're mute. They're silent when we're responsible for the wrongdoing and the killings of civilians and the destruction of the country and the rise of ISIS. They got nothing to say about that. But. God forbid we ever pull out from anywhere, then all of a sudden, oh my God, what? Look at the chaos! We should have stayed! And that's what drives me crazy, is this is the same playbook, guys, they're going to do with any single withdrawal, is if they, we pull out of Afghanistan, oh my God, look at the chaos! We pull out of Iraq, oh my God, look at the chaos! This is what they're going to do. 100% what they're going to do. And they're gaslighting you, and they're misleading you. Fact of the matter is, a lot of these wars are illegal. We shouldn't have been there in the first place. Illegal under U.S. law, illegal under international law. They create more problems than they solve. It's not our right to do these things anyway. There are specific criticisms of Trump you can make regarding this, but they're not making those specific criticisms. The underlying argument for everything they're saying is, let's just stay there forever. That's their underlying philosophy. I just, listen, if it was Obama who who pulled out like this, I think they would have supported it. Most of them would have supported it, you know? And I think that's what's frustrating is that in the Trump era, so many people's brains are broken and they're unwilling to look at things objectively. I'm going to say for the 14th time now, there are specific criticisms of how Trump did this. He just pulled out. There were no UN peacekeepers. There were no Syrian government forces. So it was kind of like a green light for Turkey to do what they did against the Kurds. You can absolutely criticize that, and you'd be correct in criticizing that. But the solution isn't we should just say that forever. And that is what they're hinting at, which is why this is infuriating. And this is the level of propaganda. You know, you see this on 
Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN now. This is the one thing where there's complete agreement in the country against Trump. And it just so happens to be an instance where he's withdrawing from somewhere. That tells you something about how broken the system is and how deep the mental rot goes in this country. Okay, next. So former Democratic leader Harry Reid Drop some knowledge on us about Elizabeth Warren when he did an interview on CNN. This is something that all of us kind of knew if you pay close attention to this stuff. But now I would argue it's verified. There is a concern uh, as well that's expressed by some establishment Democrats that she is uh, too far left. I think that that's uh, not just weight. For example, Medicare for all, right? Asked me, how do you feel about that? I said, I think what we need to do first is let's make sure Obamacare is strengthening it. Republicans have done everything they can to hurt it. Let's strengthen it. We almost got the public option the first time. That's as good as Medicare for all anyway. And so that's not what she's saying. Well, but I think you give her some time. I think that she's not in love with that. I think she. You'll wait and see how that all turns out. So you think she's more pragmatic than? Oh, I know she's pragmatic. She's wait. To me, that sounds like a dude who's had conversations with her and not like a dude who's guessing. That's what that sounds like to me. Oh, I know she's more pragmatic. Just wait. What this means is she wins the primary and she gets to the general election. She will no longer be talking about Medicare for all. She will immediately move the goalposts to a public option-like system, and you heard Harry Reid say it there, he thinks that's just as good as, a, as Medicare for All. It's not. It's not. It's not even close, because the for-profit health insurance companies would still play a giant role in the system, and they're the heart of the problem. But he thinks it's just as good. Elizabeth Warren, she might think that as well. He sounds very confident that, oh, no, no, she's more pragmatic. The only way we can beat Trump is to have somebody who actually believes in something, is principled, and will make the arguments. Harry Reid is signaling here, oh, no, a pivot's coming, baby. Pivot's coming. If she wins the primary and she gets to the general election, just wait. Now, what everybody needs to get is this is baked into the cake of what every single strategist in Washington, D.C. tells candidates. Every single one views the pivot as a duh. Like, oh, what do you mean? It's time for the general election? Pivot. What do you mean? This is, what, this is the way it works. In the primary, you pretend to be so far left and get the base on your side. And then in the general, you flip on everything and you run to the center. And that's how you win in the general election because you need to get more moderate voters. This is the philosophy. This is the mindset. Just so you know, it doesn't work. Look at what happened with Hillary Clinton. And by the way, strategists call it pivoting, 
regular voters call it lying. You told me one thing in the primary, then you flip it or tell me the opposite in the general. So why should I trust a word you say? Guys, it's not just wrong and that you're a liar. It's also terrible politics. I don't know if you remember, but Trump got a lot of crap for not pivoting in the general. I remember three or four articles. We covered some of them. Where they're like, was the pivot coming? Where's the pivot? Where's the general election pivot? He didn't do it. Because he wasn't really a politician. And he's just winging it. <laughs> he's like, I don't know. I'll keep talking about the wall and stuff. We want me to tell you. <laughs> now, but in the primary, what else did he do? He broke some taboos. He also says, I want to protect Social Security. I want to protect Medicare. I'm going to bring our jobs back. That's not stuff regular Republicans said. Who's winging it the entire time? But he said the same thing in the primary and the same thing in the general, and it worked. What Harry Reid is indicating here is Elizabeth Warren, oh, just wait. Oh, I know she's pragmatic. Like, she's just saying it to get elected. She's just saying the Medicare for All thing to get elected, but wait for it. She ain't going to do Medicare for All. I can't believe anybody thinks there's still a question as to whether or not it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. I can't believe anybody even pretends it's 50-50. If you're actually on the left, if you're a social Democrat or a Democratic Socialist, if you want real change in this country, even if you don't, if you don't care about any other issue but all you care about is health care and Medicare for all, there's no question here, man. Because not only are you going to need to believe in it, you have no idea how hard you have to fight for it and go to the mat for it. You need to throw around political weight like we haven't seen since the civil rights era. I mean, you need to be willing to really get Machiavellian and cutthroat with this stuff and, you know, tell the Democratic senators and congresspeople, listen, you either vote with me or I will do everything I can to end your political career and rally against you and defeat you. You'll be primaried and you'll lose. Because I, the President of the United States, will do a rally in your home state. And I'm more popular than you are. I got an 80% favorability rating uh, in the party. Your 90% favorability rating. How about you? What, you? what are you, 52 thereabouts? I will destroy you. The only way you're going to get Medicare for all is if you believe in it to your core and you're willing to go to the mat for it and fight for it politically and spend massive political capital in the process. Is she going to do that? We don't even know if she believes in it. We don't even know if she believes in it. She's pretending to believe in it, but I saw the clip and you saw the clip before she's been coached into this new position of hers. She was on TYT, and what's the first thing she did when I asked about Medicare for All? Immediately deflected and argued, listen, the core of where all the Democrats are is the same. Whether it's Medicare for All or Medicare for All Extra or public option or, um, you know, whatever other fake plans are out there, she says all, it's all the same because the core is we need to give everybody – Access to quality, affordable care, all the weasel words sprinkled in there. That's a sign, guys. If she thinks a, a, a Mayor Pete plan is as good as the Bernie or Jayapal bill, she's full of it, and she doesn't care about this issue. This doesn't mean that in other ways she's not decent. Again, I'll, I'll always give her credit on Wall Street. It's because of her I got hundreds of dollars put back in my pocket because I was defrauded by a credit card company. Okay, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau was wonderful. But on healthcare, stop pretending like she's where she needs to be because she's not. She's not. There's a reason why her honest commentary before she was coached out of it was that all the Democrats have a core, their core in the right spot. I think the furthest she would go and the most she'd try to fight for as president would be a public option. And I don't even think she would necessarily get that. 
maybe we should get some minor tweaks around the edges to expand Obamacare ever so slightly. So we'd still have 500,000 Americans going bankrupt because of medical bills. We'd still have millions of people uncovered. It's status quo stuff, man. And I don't know what to tell you other than how many examples of little hints have been dropped. There's been a lot of little hints dropped whether it's Harry Reid or others or Elizabeth Warren herself, there's been countless hints dropped that she ain't on the level. So if you have this, you know, high on your list of policies you care about, and just so everybody knows, health care is the number one issue for Americans, according to Poland. The number one issue is health care. Well, we know what the solution is. We know what the answer is. We learn from every other developed country. If you're not willing to fight for that, you ain't at the top of the list. It's that simple. And to them, it's all a game. It's all a game. Oh, I want to become president. I want to get that prestige. What's my agenda? I don't know. We'll work on that. You know, we'll make some changes. We'll grow. We'll evolve. No. I want to know exactly what you stand for and exactly what you're going to fight for. And I don't want you to, you know, be two-faced and strategize. And that's, that's what this is. This is over-calculating nonsense. It's, as we learned Hillary said from WikiLeaks, I have public positions and I have private positions. That's what this is. That doesn't fly anymore. Guys, we can't afford another Obama-like presidency. That might be slightly unfair to Warren. That might be slightly unfair. I think worst-case scenario, she would be like another Obama. But best-case scenario, she'd be marginally better. (laughs) But that's the range. The range is... Slightly left of Obama to Obama-esque. We can't afford another presidency like that at this point in time. we got to go real change, FDR style. Just real reform of the system. And they're letting you know beforehand, for anybody who's still confused on this, they're letting you know beforehand, Harry Reid is making it clear. Oh, she'll come around. Oh, she's very pragmatic. What more do you want? You want you want her to tattoo it on her forehead? <laughs> I'm not Bernie. Let's tattoo it on her forehead. I'm pretending to be him, but I'm not him. I don't know what more you want, man, but this is crystal clear. He sounds like he has had the conversations and he knows what he's talking about. By the way, former Democratic leader. He knows Elizabeth Warren. They're friends. We all should have known. I mean, it was already past the point where we should have known, but there was a couple of very clear signs. Like when we saw all the articles about how she's courting the Democratic establishment behind the scenes. You know, the best possible spin you could give that is it's just good strategizing, and she's playing the Democratic establishment. I mean, okay, if you believe that, fine. I don't think I'm that naive. <laughs> I think there's courting of the Democratic establishment going on because she wants to win, and she understands that certain things go hand in hand with that. And you can only change things to a point. And she's willing to play that game, and she's willing to concede where she has to. And one of those areas of concession where she can easily pivot away and act like everything's fine is Medicare for All. I said it before, I'll say it again. At this point in time, and this is the sad reality, there's only one candidate who really means it on Medicare for All. 
There are plenty of other half-decent candidates out there. I still consider Warren half-decent. Tulsi, Yang. But the only one who has never raised a question on their commitment to Medicare for All is Bernie. When they tell you what they're about, believe them. So I want to elaborate on something that I said yesterday because I think that this is important to explain to everybody exactly how we can get real change in this country. Because a lot of us, including me at times, we feel resigned to the fact that we're never going to get real change. The best we're ever going to get is like little incremental steps in the right direction. But those gaping gangrenous wounds we have as a nation will never get anything more than a little bit of ointment on a tiny band-aid. We all feel like that from time to time, but, but, that's actually ahistorical because we can get real change and we have gotten real change. It's just a matter of fighting for it and it's just a matter of not taking no for an answer. It's just a matter of doing the work. Now, again, I know that's a difficult thing to do because we don't have a crystal ball. We don't, we can't go into the future and look back and realize, oh, we did win on it. So sometimes you feel like you're waking up and you're fighting and it's like there's no end in sight. We're never going to actually win on this, so what's the point? But, again, I want to stress the, the fact that that's ahistorical. If we put in the work, if we don't take no for an answer, we can win. But then the question becomes, how? How do we get from point A to point B when it comes to fixing this country? How do we get to a system where we don't have a living wage, but we get a living wage? How do we get to a point where we don't have Medicare for all, but we get Medicare for all? How do we get to a point where we, ha we have endless wars, but we want to end the endless wars? How do, how do we get to that point? Okay, well, here's what I said yesterday. Both parties in D.C. are deeply corrupt and corporate, and the only way to change the system is to reject their money, expose the charlatans, break their backs politically, and harness the popular will of the people marching on Washington to force fundamental legislative change. Then I said there's literally no way to get real change without an outside-inside game, and only one candidate has specifically dedicated himself to exactly that. So what do I mean? If you're, let's say you're elected president, and you mean really well, and you're social democratic, and you want to get all these reforms implemented, you will run into a brick wall. And that brick wall is the corruption in D.C. and the corporate stranglehold that the big corporations, the multinational corporations, have on both political parties. So even if you mean well, and even if you got all the right ideas, you go in there with your plans, and you're not going to get much, if any, of them done. Ready for this? Even if, you ha even if you're a Democratic president and you have Democratic supermajorities, you're not going to get them done. You're not. Why? Because at least half the Democratic Party are corporate Democrats, are centrist Democrats. Some of them come from conservative districts and would never vote for these far-left policies. Some of them are backed by moneyed interests and would never turn their backs on those moneyed interests. 
So even with Democratic supermajorities, you're not going to get it done. So that that would be the scenario if it's just a, you know, a president who means well who's going in there to play the inside game. Okay? If you only do the outside game, you have no institutional power. None. You have no institutional power. So you could, you know, do all the rallies you want and scream into the wilderness, but there's no tangible result. You know, it's like the Women's March, for example, and I'm not just to single out them, but it's them, it's other rallies that we've seen in the era of Trump. A lot of it is just a lot of people getting together and we're mad and we're going to let everybody know that we're mad and then we're going to go home tomorrow and watch reruns of Will and Grace or something. So if you just do the outside game, totally ineffectual. You just have the inside game, totally ineffectual. The only way to get real change is with an inside-outside game where it's married together. So what does that mean? Well, let's say Bernie Sanders is elected president. He gets in the White House. He has meetings with uh, you know, his top advisors, with the head of, of various progressive groups. And they develop a strategy. Bernie knows he's running up against a brick wall. Bernie knows one man can't change the system like this. So we all sit around, and the conclusion is President Sanders is going to do an address from the Oval Office. In his address from the Oval Office, he's going to call for an FDR-style um, you know, Bill of Economic Rights. And he's going to lay them out in no uncertain terms. We want Medicare for all. We want free college. We want a living wage. We want to end the wars and reinvest here at home with the Green New Deal. Um, we want to end the drug war and free nonviolent drug offenders. We will have a list of the top five or ten super important policy positions that are positions that over 60% of the American people agree with. Incredibly strong majorities, okay? We'll have that list. He lays them out in an address from the Oval Office at prime time at night. And at the end of that speech, President Bernie Sanders says, I'm calling on all Americans to march on Washington. I'm calling on all Americans to do a general strike and ground this economy to a halt until we get the necessary change. And what we're going to do is we're going to camp out in Washington, and we're not moving until this agenda is passed. And anybody who dares get in our way will get a primary, and they will lose. You draw the line in the sand. The inside game is our ally, Bernie Sanders, laying it out in crystal clear terms and being our leader in the White House and giving everybody the strategy. That's the inside game. The outside game is millions and millions and millions of Americans will show up to Washington, will camp out, and will not move. When you have the President of the United States, who just got elected and has an incredibly high approval rating, calling out the corruption of Congress, saying, if you don't vote for this people's agenda, we will primary you. We're taking names. Oh, they'll fall in line. And the ones who don't, will just lose. And we'll replace them with somebody who does fall in line. Then you have what is effectively an inside-outside game where you have, like, a new civil rights movement. It's a new civil rights movement. Like the Poor People's Project... Back to life. I mean, that's already happening, but this would be a, this would be it graduating to the next level. And that's the only way I think in today's day and age we get real change. 
Now, I'm not a revolutionary. I don't believe in violence. The only time I'm okay with violence is in self-defense. And I don't really buy the arguments that are, you know, very high-minded rationalizations of like, well, the system's already doing violence on you in situations X, Y, and Z. No, I mean like direct violence, okay? You can do violence only to defend yourself, I think. That's my opinion on it. I think there are intelligent, strategic ways in order to get change. And that's the best way that I think actually has a very good chance of working. Now, uh, don't get it twisted, guys. It's not as easy as I just laid out. You want to know why? Because when you have those meetings with the top progressive groups, when you have all these voices in the room, there are going to be disagreements as to what to include in the top five or ten, you know, um, issues in the new Economic Bill of Rights. There are going to be disagreements. Some people are going to feel snubbed. Some issues are going to have to be left to the side. But, you know, I would argue that the way that you make it most likely to pass is by having a situation where every single one of those proposals polls over 60%. And we do have a list of five or 10 of those issues that poll over 60%. So there are going to be disagreements, and it does require massive organization and communication and coordination on a level that maybe we've never seen in this country. But if we have the political will, and we do, and we have the, the general strategy laid out, and we do, I think that's how you get change. Now, the final point I want to make is this. This is why I'm so critical of Elizabeth Warren. Now, some people might say, well, that's unfair because she's one of the better candidates. True, she's one of the better candidates. I'm not denying that. But there is only one candidate who has already committed to this outside-inside strategy, and that's Bernie Sanders. I asked him in my interview with him, to his face, Bernie Will you support primaries of corporate Democrats who are obstructing your agenda, which is the agenda of the American people? He didn't skip a beat. He said yes. He will support primaries of people in his own party if they don't do the right thing. That's unprecedented. As far as I know, certainly in the modern era, it's unprecedented. Elizabeth Warren was on TYT saying, quote, let me make a spirited defense, unquote, of Joe Manchin. Those are not the same. One of them will do this inside-outside strategy. One of them would have no problem calling for a general strike and calling for marching on Washington and camping out at Washington until we get the change. The other one would not do that at all. The other one would try to warn against that. The other one would say, I got this. Let me work from within the system. I got this. That ain't going to work. I don't care how well-meaning you are. Even if it was Bernie, and it was Bernie alone, in the White House, and he tried to do it his own in there, He's not going to get the kind of transformational change that we need. So I fundamentally disagree with the strategy of, oh, I'm just going to do this on the inside. That's it. But Because that, that won't work. So why would I try to lie to you guys and mislead you and say, like, oh, well, you know, Bernie and Warren, they're about the same. They're not. They're just not. They're not even close. And you could argue the biggest difference. There are some differences on policy which are real, but the biggest difference is on strategy and what they're willing to do to win on these issues. This is how you get real change. This is how you get real change. We learn from the brilliant Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement. That's our model. Now you mix in with that leadership from the top and a clear ally who's 100% on our side in the White House, and we can be unstoppable. I mean, this is how you do it, man. This is the only way that I can think of where we really can get the change that I'm calling for. And maybe at the end of the day, 
on our list of 10 things or on our list of five things. Maybe we only get three. Maybe we only get Medicare for all and free college and ending the wars. And maybe the other ones we don't get. Do you realize how historic it would be that we got Medicare for all? That we took a country where 500,000 people go bankrupt every year for medical bills and 30 to 45,000 Americans die every year from lack of basic health care? That we looked at those problems and we actually fixed them? That we caught up to the rest of the industrialized world? Do you realize how big of a difference that makes in people's lives? People no longer chained to their employer, unwilling to switch jobs because they, they need their health care. Do you realize how big it would be to change that? This is the path to political victory, man. Now, listen, I'm open to hearing people who have other ideas, but I'll tell you up front. I don't believe in, in revolution. I don't believe in, in um, violence that's not 100% defensive in, nation, in nature. So this, to me, this is the best I could think of. I don't think a purely inside game will work. I don't think a purely outside game will work. All my friends out there who, you know, are, love the idea of, oh, we got to do a third party and we got to build it from the ground up. I love you. I think you mean well. I don't think your idea is going to work at all. <laughs> I don't think it's going to come close to working. I think the way that we do it is what I just described there, clear political pressure, clear political goal. That's, that was my main criticism of movements like the women's movement and March for Our Lives and all these things is, no, you, you have to be so specific in today's day and age. You can't just be like, yeah, Trump's bad and women are great. What does that mean? No, here's what we're calling for. Here's our list of stuff. We're not budging. And we're not going anywhere until you do it. And if you don't agree with us, you'll lose your job. It's got to be super clear, super specific, super direct. And it's got to be inside, outside. And there's got to be all different parts of it. The leadership role, the people, the allied groups like Justice Democrats and Our Revolution who are there and they know, oh, this person's not doing their bidding. Great. We got somebody to primary and let's go. All the, the puzzle pieces need to be there. And believe me, when we have a situation where the economy grinds to a halt because there is a general strike, even if 20% of the economy grinds to a halt, you don't think there's going to be pressure? You don't think they're going to make some concessions? I guarantee you they'll make some concessions because I guarantee you the owners of the politicians, the corporations, will turn to them and say, it's time to make concessions. This is my theory of change. This is how I think we win. And I'm tired of messing around. I can't stomach another milk toast, centrist, center-left presidency where we get little crumbs and we're supposed to be happy. <laughs> no. No, I'm not. I'm not happy. No. We have giant problems in this country, and we're st the political class is still in denial. So it's time for us to take the reins here and go on the offense. And I think I laid out a decent roadmap on how to do that. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Joe Biden almost made a decent point. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Mayor Pete. We're going to talk about a lot here. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with all of this and more.
come back, y'all. Okay, um, <clears throat> all right, we're going to talk about uh, Joe Biden. He almost didn't suck when he made a point here. <laughs> almost, almost doesn't count, though. Let's dive right into it. I really enjoyed doing that segment on how we get real change in this country. I really enjoyed that. Okay, here we go. Joe Biden almost, almost made a decent point here in response to the scandal involving his son and Ukraine and Trump digging for dirt. So let's take a look and then I'll break that down. with any and all guidelines or standards that President Biden may issue. Can you offer a little bit more detail about what kind of ethical guidelines yes. were set up and would yes. they, in retrospect, have prevented your son from taking the kind of order position he was on in the first place? I will tell you what I'm going to do. Not what, we're doing, what I'm going to do. No one in my family will have an office in the White House, will sit at a meeting as if they're a cabinet member, will in fact have any business relationship with anyone that relates to a foreign corporation or a foreign country. Period. Period. End of story. And what I'm not going to let you all do is take the focus off the problem. No one, no one has asserted my son did a single thing wrong. No one has asserted that I have done anything wrong except the lying president. That's the only thing. That's the focus. No, that's wrong. <laughs> Many people are asserting Hunter did something wrong. Many people are asserting you did something wrong, myself included. And what I'm basing it off of is not Trump. What I'm basing it off of is that Politico article from, I think, 2017 or 2015. I don't remember which. I think there were two separate ones, actually. One was Politico and one was not. But bottom line is uh, Biden Inc. was the name of it, and it lays out very clearly how um, basically, Biden's entire family profited off of his public profile. And, you know, the Hunter thing is just one example with the Ukrainian uh, nat- uh, natural gas firm that he was getting $50,000 a month from. But as I've explained on this show, there's also instances of um, one of them becoming a lobbyist and then the um, issues that they're lobbying overlapping with uh, Joe's committee assignments. Another one was on... Uh, defense contractors and the military industrial complex at the same time that Biden was overseeing the occupation of Iraq. So there's all types of bad stuff there. So that last part of his where he's like, nobody's even saying we did anything wrong. You sound like Trump when you say stuff like that. I've done nothing wrong, not even close. It was the most beautiful phone call you've ever heard. It was the perfect phone call, really. (laughs) It was the perfect, I can't go over the perfect phone call thing. But he kind of sounds like Trump when he does that pretending nobody's saying you did anything wrong. Of course of course they are, and I'm one of them, and many people are. What are you talking about? Of course people are saying that. Um, but the point that wasn't bad was, like, he's almost there, man. Joe, you're so close, but you're so far, is when he says at the beginning, like, I guarantee you in my White House, I won't have family members sitting in on meetings as if they're cabinet members. Like, ah, you're so close, but you're still so far. So... If I'm Joe Biden, and I don't know why I'm giving Joe Biden advice, I shouldn't be, because I don't like him, 
and I really hope he's not the nominee. But um, if I'm Joe Biden, first of all, I don't don't say anything about Hunter at all. <laughs> like whenever somebody brings up Hunter, be Hunter, Hunter. We talking about hunting? I don't even do nothing about hunting. I'm a fisher. I like fishing. I don't know nothing about hunting. Hunting. You don't know about hunting. Hunter? <laughs> You'd be like, who? What are you talking about? Who? What are you talking about? <laughs> so I wouldn't say anything about Hunter. I'd put Hunter completely aside because what he's doing is he keeps being defensive and he looks guilty. Now, if you'll notice what Trump does, and this works better, is he always just goes on the offense. So if, if, if I'm Joe Biden, first of all, I say nothing about Hunter at all. But then the other thing I do is, you got to go more on the offense against Trump. He did it subtly there with like the, I won't have my family members in the White House as if they're cabinet members. You're close, man. But what you have to do is be like, Jared and Ivanka made $82 million in one year with Donald Trump as president, including from foreign nations. $82 million in one year. You want to talk about pay-to-play corruption? That's, that's what we're talking about. That's the problem. $82 million in one year. Are you kidding me? If he was really serious, he could bring up, Donald Trump's taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from Saudi Arabia at his D.C. hotel and then approving weapons deals as they commit a genocide in, in Yemen and then vetoing an attempt from Congress to say, whoa, the genocide thing is bad, let's not arm them. So you want to talk about corruption, how about corruption that leads to a genocide? This is how you go on the offense. By the way, there are plenty of other examples. I always bring up the Saudi Arabia example because I think it's the clearest, but there are plenty of other examples. Jared Kushner taking millions of dollars from an Israeli bank, and then lo and behold, the Trump administration turns around and says, Jerusalem's all yours. No problem. Like, these are all deeply corrupt. These are all clear violations of the Emoluments Clause. And I could get, there's probably examples that, you know, I don't even know the details of. I know Taiwan was one of them, how Taiwan was saying, talking about getting a Trump hotel there or something, and Donald called them, and China was mad because technically they're still the one China policy, and, like, Taiwan is, China says they're part of them. And, like, there's all this stuff going on, all this fishy stuff going on with his business dealings and his kids. And, like, instead of laying out, hey, man, you're the most corrupt person maybe ever in that office, he, he's like, no, nobody said anything about Hunter. Hunter, did, I, would, I wouldn't have anybody in the White House who's my family member or something. Uh. <laughs> you're so weak. Feeble Joe Biden. You're so feeble. Under minimal Trump pressure, he, he collapses. He folds like a lawn chair. We, co- we covered the story the other day. He, um, he's sending strongly worded letters to the media, basically begging them to not cover Hunter. Okay, even if he thinks he's innocent, which I don't think he does, but even if he thinks he did nothing wrong, he and his family, you manage to do the one thing that makes you look the most guilty of anybody ever. <laughs> like, you look more guilty than Trump when you do that shit. Sending a letter. Please don't talk about this. What? And by the way, also wholly inappropriate. You're running to be president of the United States. You think you could just dictate to the media what they can and cannot cover, what they should and shouldn't cover? Get out of here, man. So he's close. He's close to making the point. When he brings up, oh, none of my kids will be in the White House. But also, by the way, when he was VP, none of his kids were in the White House, but he did have his family members getting paid, not just from lobbyists here and corporations here, 
but foreign corporations. And that's the problem with Hunter. Ukraine, China, same thing. By the way, China, uh, he just stepped down from, the, from a Chinese company board. Why? Because it's obvious that it's not, like, that is obvious pay-to-play. You think they're paying Hunter because Hunter's really like, you know, oh, he's a genius on whatever the topic is. No, they want access to Joe. Of course, everybody knows that. How dumb do you have to be to deny that? Um, so, but it's interesting because it's, so, it's really something else, man. Donald Trump's blitzkrieg strategy just works. It just works because he's been relentlessly going after Joe Biden, Hunter, Ukraine, this, that, corruption, blah, 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 releasing ads and whatnot. And what does Biden do? Quietly tells Hunter, you got to step down from that Chinese board, dog. So Hunter steps down. Like, now it's a good thing because he should have never been on that board in the first place. Don't get me wrong. Okay, it's a good thing. But he just proved his point. <laughs> like, his point was, that's corruption. And you were like, can you please step down? Because this is corruption. <laughs> Guys, he's the weakest candidate. He's just as weak as Hillary Clinton was. I'm sorry. She was so weak because the Clinton Foundation and all that stuff. Biden, super weak. Super weak because of Biden, Inc. and his family cashing in on his name. So, I just want you to know you have a choice. You don't have to go the Biden direction in the primary, because if you go the Biden direction in the primary, then it's a nail-biter election, and, and Biden can easily lose to Trump. It's possible. I think Trump's the favorite of his Biden versus Trump. So don't vote for Biden, because he is, hear me now, quote me later, the least electable. Okay, Mayor Pete. So Mayor Pete was asked about Joe Biden's corruption and the fact that his son is stepping down from the board of a Chinese company. Here's his answer. Uh, Bloomberg uh, is reporting this morning that Hunter Biden is stepping down from the board of a Chinese company and promising to forego all foreign work if his father is elected president. Is that not a tacit acknowledgement from Hunter Biden, if not the Biden campaign, uh, that there was at least an appearance of a conflict of interest issue here uh, that was valid? I think it demonstrates the difference in standards relative to the White House. I mean, here you have Hunter Biden stepping down from a position in order to make sure, even though there's been no accusation of, of wrongdoing, what? doing something just to make sure there's not even the appearance of a conflict of interest. While in the White House, the President of the United States is a walking conflict of interest. You got family members, you want to talk about family members? In the White House right now, you got Ivanka Trump benefiting from patents from the Chinese, you got uh, the President's son-in-law texting with Mohammed bin Salman, the, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, while meanwhile the president's sons go around the world uh, pretending like the fact that their father is the president of the United States has no impact on the international business dealings that they do. We don't even know whether Trump financial interest in Turkey contributed to the decision to betray American allies and American values. And they want to talk about conflicts of interest. It is a radically different standard, and we cannot allow this president to be able to change the subject, especially with unfounded allegations so his attack on trump was actually very good there it was better than any democrat i've seen so far lay it out against trump the idea that he's accusing somebody else of corruption and pay to play no look at him look at him look at his 
I mean, uh, he didn't bring up the Saudi Arabia example. That sucked. He didn't bring up the $82 million Jared and Ivanka made in one year. There's no way they would have made anywhere near that much if daddy wasn't president. So he didn't bring that up, which is terrible. But all the other examples he gave were great. Every single one of those was good examples. Um, the one part where I would tell him, you have to stop doing this, because this is the thing that I think makes everybody annoyed, is he says there's no accusation of wrongdoing with, with the Bidens, and you know they just stepped down to avoid even the appearance of corruption. Why is it so hard? Now, listen, for Biden, the advice I would give Biden is don't even mention, mention Hunter, pretend you don't even know who Hunter is, just anytime that's brought up, boom, attack Trump, go on the offense. That's what I'd say to Biden. What I'd say to Mayor Pete is Biden is your opponent right now, okay? You're not polling all that great. I get it. You're not at the bottom of the pack, but middle of the pack ain't really going to cut it at this point. you gotta, you got to really break through a little bit. So you should be going at Biden. You should be going at him, and you shouldn't be doing nonsense cover-ups for him like this where he says, oh, there's no accusation of wrongdoing. Yes, there is. There's quite a bit of accusations of wrongdoing. We covered the story. Biden, Inc., his whole family profiting off of his public name. Yes, Hunter Biden making $50,000 a month on a Ukrainian energy board when he doesn't know anything about Ukrainian energy, making money from a Chinese firm. He doesn't know anything about that stuff either. Of course it's pay-to-play corruption. Of course it's for access to Biden. Of course it's for special favors. When Democrats pretend and this is what they do, and this is insufferable, that like, oh, we're so holier than now, that doesn't work because people know you're full of it. They know that you're doing some creepy stuff. They know that you're corrupt as well. So stop trying to play the holier-than-now card. Instead, what Mayor Pete should do is attack Biden for being corrupt because he is. He is. Attack him for that and attack Trump twice as hard for being corrupt. That's what you got to do. Like, you're not going to – you expect to be viewed as, like, a transformational candidate. You expect to win this election by pretending, like, everybody on my side is all puppies and rainbows, and there's not even an accusation of wrongdoing, Papa. <laughs> That's not going to work, and it's not true. So he almost – the reason I'm playing you this clip is because you get, you get both worlds there. Um, you get – his attack on Trump on this particular issue was better than any other Democrat I've seen yet lay out the case against Trump and his family, okay? Credit where credit's due. But his, his inability to state the obvious against his opponent in this primary is pathetic. But then again, there might be another angle to this. And this is reading between the lines a little too much, and it's just speculation. But, you know, that could be because he would maybe want a position in a Biden administration, which is why he's, you know, deflecting all the criticism from Biden. But um, whatever it is, I don't care. That aspect of wrong is wrong. The part that's right is what he said uh, about Trump. And I would hit Trump like that, but even harder. Like, he's right there, the best one I've seen yet, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. I would have everybody in the country know the fact that Jared and Ivanka made $82 million in one year. Everybody in the country should know that fact. And everybody in the country should know Saudi Arabia is paying Donald Trump as he's letting them get away with the genocide and arming them as they do it.
Okay, now uh, Mayor Pete is going to tell us a thing or two about Syria. He's going to give us the Democratic Party line. Here we go. Here we go. Democratic Party line on Syria. So Mayor Pete is going to perfectly demonstrate um, what the Democratic Party line on Syria is going to be since Trump withdrew from um, the north, northern part of Syria, northeastern part of Syria, which is a Kurdish region. Take a look. I want to start uh, with President Trump's uh, move to withdraw U.S. troops from northern Syria. You called the move shameful, but you have also said that the U.S. needs to, quote, put an end to endless wars. Now, I, I understand you don't like the way President Trump has done this, but if you were to pull troops out of Syria, how could you ensure U.S. allies, such as the Kurds, that they would be protected. But that's just the point. Putting an end to endless war doesn't mean ending American engagement around the world. Often it means making sure we do our part to stabilize or help keep the peace so that full-blown uh, conflicts don't break out. Well, look at what's happened here. This isn't even a strategy or a policy. It is the president systematically destroying American alliances and American values, and that makes America worse off. Look, the 21st century is going to be filled with these kinds of messy, asymmetric conflicts. And we need to make sure that the U.S. is in a position to defend our interests and to live up to our obligations to our allies. And right now, we're seeing the reverse. It is horrifying to see what is emerging, not just in terms of what is being done to Kurds, but in terms of ISIS fighters now being released, exactly as we were warned would happen. And we're seeing the, the first reports of atrocities, too. And what's even more disturbing to me as a veteran is hearing from soldiers who feel that they have lost their honor over this, who feel that they're unable to uh, look in the eye allies who put their lives on the line to fight with us. And if you take away a soldier's honor, you might as well go after their body armor next. That's what the commander-in-chief is doing right now. So under a President Buttigieg, U.S. service members would stay in Syria. Is that right? If that's what's needed in order to protect American interests and avoid uh, a repeat of ISIS emerging, sure. Think about it this way. It's very clear that the way for us to get out of an open-ended, uh, open conflict with ground troops forever in Afghanistan is to reposition and end up only with a very limited special operations and intelligence presence. That's exactly what we had in Syria, and the president is pulling it out for no clear or good reason in a way that is not going to serve American interests, especially not with ISIS fighters now being liberated as a consequence of these militias being betrayed. I mean, okay, so he just laid out for you what I think the standard Democratic position is going to be moving forward on this issue. And when he was asked, point blank, so would a President uh, Buttigieg keep troops in Syria? He said, sure. Sure. That means there was some sort of residual force, keep the peace, so on and so forth. Sure. I don't agree with that. And 
not only do I not agree with that, it is incredibly, deeply, insufferably arrogant because it buys into the logic of empire. It buys into the logic of where the world's sole superpower, therefore, we get to violate U.S. law, we get to violate international law, because we said so. So just so you know, we're in Syria illegally. We never got an approval through Congress. We never got uh, an approval through the U.N. We're there illegally. Has Pete Buttigieg ever brought that up, or is he troubled by that? No, not at all. Yeah, that's totally fine. So would a uh, President uh, Buttigieg stay in Syria? Sure, but that's, I mean, even in Afghanistan, you got to keep some behind some re- residual forces, right? No, no, you don't. So let me, I have a really solid answer to Jake Tapper's first question, which is a fair question. He says, all right, well, you say we should get out of these wars. Well, now you're seeing the effects of that. Like, you're seeing what's happening to the Kurds. How can you pull out but also assure that there won't be, like, chaos or whatever? I think that's a fair question. I think he might not be asking for all the right reasons because he also buys into U.S. empire and is kind of an interventionist in his own respect. But that is a fair question because it's not like what happened to the Kurds is good. No, it's not good. It's bad. So here's what should have been done. The U.S. should have reached out to the U.N. and coordinated on having peacekeepers basically take the place of the U.S. troops. So we're no longer involved in there illegally and unilaterally. We're out of there, so we have no right to be there in the first place. We have U.N. peacekeepers who provide a buffer to make sure that Turkey doesn't invade and doesn't attack the Kurds. That's one thing you could have done. The other thing you could have done is meet with, yes, the Syrian government. These are Syrian Kurds. They're part of Syria. So you talk to the Syrian government and say, hey, listen, man, we're, we have no right to be here. We're leaving. So sit down the Kurds and the Syrian government and have them make an agreement up front, as opposed to what happened in this instance, which is Trump pulled out, left a vacuum, Turkey invaded, and then the Kurds, out of desperation, ran to the Syrian government. The Syrian government said, all right, we're coming to help. So, but you could have avoided the chaos and the casualties in the middle and the Turkish invasion up front if the Trump administration was willing to meet with the Syrian government behind the scenes up front and say, we're getting out, you guys need to cut a deal to make sure because we know what Turkey wants to do here and they want to invade and you're going to have to prevent that. So let's say Donald Trump did one, one of those two things or did both of them, a mix thereof, UN peacekeepers and the Syrian government in the area and we get out. Not only would I defend him, he would be 100% correct. I think there's a good criticism of Trump, which is the way he did it is totally reckless. And I also think it's fair to say, hey, maybe there was like a deal he cut behind the scenes with Turkey and Erdogan because he he doesn't care about the Kurds. He's like, yeah, do whatever you want. He pulled out. So there are criticisms of Trump with exactly how he did this. But, 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 I think any and all criticisms of Trump on this issue need to underscore the point that it is still correct to end our wars. It's still the correct thing to do that. And what did we see here from Pete? And what did we see here from all the other Democrats on this? A total flip. And now all of a sudden they're pro-war and they'll say it. He was asked, hey, so should we have kept troops in Syria? Sure, if that that would lead to the better outcomes, why not? That's all it took for all these guys to immediately crumble from their nominal anti-war positions. Because even Pete in these debates spoke against Afghanistan, spoke against Iraq, spoke against all these wars. Oh my God, they're so bad. The second there's any little tiny bit of political pressure in the other direction, immediately crumbles. And that stance of being anti-war becomes, sure, we can stay there. Sure, we should have residual forces. 
totally disregarding that these interventions were the problem in the first place in many respects, and also disregarding it's illegal under U.S. law and international law, and we have no right to violate the sovereignty like this. So, um, and then the final thing is that line about the soldiers, you've taken a soldier's honor. You might as well take his body armor. So rehearsed, so fake, man. God, that's so fake. Who falls for this? Jesus Christ. Ugh. I'm thinking of the mind of a person who would watch this and fall for it, and I am disgusted. (laughs) So anyway, there you have it. Now the Democratic line is, and by the way, he was uh, at least a little more nuanced on it than you see many of the Democrats now. Many of the Democrats are just like flat out massively pro-war now, and Trump is is getting away with framing this on his own terms, and his terms are, I'm against the forever wars, I'm against the endless wars, and we need to do it because it's the right thing to do. We need to stop these wars. And everybody's taking the bait on the other side, and and other Republicans too, by the way. And they're like, no, we need to go back in and more war. Well, then he wins. He wins that exchange. Do you not get that? Are you really that dense? Do you not understand that? Are you so far up the rear end of, in that D.C. bubble that you don't realize that that's a political winner and you're not going to win by being, what about the Curtis Peshmerga? Is that what voters care about? I mean, listen, again, I, I, there are criticisms of Trump over this and what happened to the Kurds is terrible. But don't, that's, don't, you don't take the bait. The real argument is not only that he did it in a reckless way and I told you the way he could do it, but he's still in Iraq, he's still in Afghanistan, He's still bombing eight different countries. He increased drone strikes 432%. He's pushing for war with Iran and Venezuela. This guy isn't anti-war. This guy's massively pro-war. You want to end the wars? Bring the troops home from Iraq and Afghanistan right now. He ain't going to do it. But if he did do it, the Democrats would flip, as we've seen here. So, man, uh, I miss the days when I was relatively certain that aspects of the Democratic Party were really anti-war. I'm thinking back to the Bush years after everybody had kind of soured. Everybody, way too many people voted for the Iraq war. But like three years in, the Democrats almost all flipped. And they were like, what are we doing? And I remember those days, and I remember being like, I'm happy that we have people who are arguing against this war and doing it fiercely. Now it's just you see the rank partisan hackery, and you see how all it takes is President Trump to mimic a few fake anti-war ideas, and all of a sudden, they're all pro-war. Like, do any of you believe in anything? Do you believe in anything? They don't. They just want to become president, and they'll say whatever they think they need to say in order to get in there. And so right now, it's like, i got to be oppositional to Trump, so it's like, sure, let's stay in Syria. That's not the direction we need to go, and that should be obvious. talk about impeachment. Edward Foley is a professor and constitutional scholar, and he went on CNN 
and explained exactly how he thinks impeachment um, could unfold. I think this is really interesting. Let's watch. Among the reasons put forth to impeach President Trump is that he asked a foreign government, Ukraine, to investigate a political rival, Joe Biden. But historically, has there ever been an example where a president was justified to do so? And if a president truly believed a crime had been committed, would he be in the wrong to pursue it? Joining me now to discuss is Edward Foley. He's a constitutional scholar, a professor at Ohio State University's law school, where he directs the election law program. He clerked, by the way, for Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman and wrote this piece in Politico. Is it ever okay for a president to ask a foreign country to investigate a political rival? Professor, permit me a long setup to my first question. I want to drill down on the specific legal issue that could confront the Senate. And I would point out that in the Constitution, Article 2, Section 4 says this, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanor. Then, on the issue of what is a high crime or misdemeanor, I direct people to Federalist 65, where Hamilton wrote this, the subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. And then you wrote this for Politico. You said, in order to prove Trump abused his presidential powers to the point that he no longer can be trusted in exercising them, the constitutional standard for impeachment, Congress must establish Trump's intent in making the request. Was it done in good faith with U.S foreign or domestic interests in mind, or in bad faith, merely for Trump's personal and political benefit. And I then ask this, if he can convince the Senate that he was acting in the best interest of the United States, he was worried about corruption in Ukraine. And that's what caused him to hold up the delivery of those monies. Might that lead to his exoneration? Yes, I think it would, if the Senate believed that he acted in good faith then that would be a reason not to remove him from office. So might therefore his best defense be to absolutely own this? I wasn't going to give Ukraine those monies because I was so worried the U.S. tax dollars would be squandered in some corrupt arrangement. Yes, but then, of course, the Senate could reach the opposite judgment, since the opposite of good faith is bad faith, so it really depends on what the senators believe was his motive. Uh, he can try to make the good faith defense, but if they think otherwise, uh, then he loses that argument. Does this require a juror, in this case a U.S. senator, to get in his head? It does. Uh, that's why I wrote the piece. I do think it turns on a judgment about his motive. I don't think you can make the judgment based on the phone call itself. You have to understand the context behind the phone call and his alleged reason for making the phone call and decide whether you buy it or don't buy it. Is there any historical precedent that the president can turn to for support? Yes, there is. Uh, there are two examples, one old and one more recent. The old one involves Aaron Burr, who was Thomas Jefferson's vice president, uh, and he uh, worked with Britain to try to really uh, take territory away from the United States. And so it would have been justified for President Jefferson 
to ask Britain to investigate what Aaron Burr was up to uh, to figure out how to protect America. So that's the old example. Uh, the new example or newer example is 1968 when Vice President, former Vice President Richard Nixon was running for the presidency. Lyndon Johnson was president at the time. Now, Johnson wasn't uh, a candidate by October, right before the election, but he had wanted to be a candidate. And he had heard that Nixon was interfering with peace talks in, with South Vietnam. And so it, it would have been appropriate for President Johnson to ask South Vietnam, I need to know what Richard Nixon is doing to protect America. I really appreciate what I think is such a cogent legal analysis that you have offered that I haven't heard from anybody else, really drilling down on exactly what issue might confront senators. Now I want to ask you a political question, because as I understand your explanation, this is bad news for Joe Biden insofar as it almost guarantees there's going to be a litigation of the president's underlying allegations about Hunter. Am I misreading this? No, uh, that's correct. I, I don't think there's any way you can uh, make a judgment about President Trump's motive without asking what were the facts concerning Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and whether or not President Trump was in good faith or bad faith in seeking the investigation. So the way that Donald Trump, if, if he follows the, the guidance that comes out of this issue analysis, will defend himself, probably will be to say, yes, I held up the money, I was justified in doing so, I was worried about corruption, and I was acting not in my personal best interest, but in the best interest of the United States, and then try and convince uh, the jurors, the senators, of that. Yes, I think that's right. That's, that's the analysis. Did Donald Trump try to get dirt on Joe Biden simply because he's principled in, uh, in his crusade against corruption and he really wants to drain the swamp? Answer, no. <laughs> if you think that's true, I have a bridge to sell you. Of course that's not the game. Of course he was doing it because this is his political opponent. That's why he's doing it. There's, I mean, come on, even Trump supporters need to agree with that. However, however... Donald Trump is going to relentlessly make that case, and he's going to argue it until he's blue in the face. And he all he needs is for it to work on Republican senators. I got news for you. The Republican senators already agree with him without him even arguing for it. And here's the other thing. Trump's got the biggest megaphone in the country because he's president. And what's interesting and what this professor is explaining is the dynamic as it would unfold is that we could conceivably have an impeachment hearing in the Senate where most of the time is focused on specifically diving into the corruption of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and the Bidens and Trump screaming it through a megaphone from the rooftop and the media reaffirming it by having to write the articles about this is the conversation that's happening, this is the hearing that's happening in the Senate. Like, we could conceivably have a situation where, even though it's Donald Trump's impeachment hearing, most of the time is discussing the Biden's corruption. Because everybody knows the argument against Trump. Oh, he was digging for dirt on his political opponents. That's it. How many times can you say that, and how many ways can you say that? Not many. <laughs> but the opposite, how many times and how many ways can you get into all the nooks and crannies of the corruption of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's family since it, profiting off his public image? A lot. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. You could talk about that for a really long time. So um, 
Now, this is why, you know, one of the many reasons why I've been warning against uh, Democrats against this. Um, by the way, this is all assuming McConnell even lets there be a hearing, and he won't. He won't. Even if the House impeaches him, which is possible, even if the House impeaches him, McConnell could just be like, and we're done with it. And that's it. Um, but even if they do have the hearing, it would backfire, because there's no way you're going to get those 20 Republican votes. There's no way he's going to be removed from office. Um, and there's no way that the majority of the time would be focused on Trump's wrongdoings. It would, he would immediately pivot, and the defense would immediately pivot and just go on the offense against Biden. And there's a lot of there there, which is why I've been warning Democrats, don't touch this with a 10-foot pole, because then you're, you're going to have to explain away his corruption. And the best counterargument they have is, well, that's run-of-the-mill corruption. That's not good. That's not a good response, because that's the same thing as, like, the Clinton Foundation – they're like, there's nothing to see here at all, nothing to see here at all. Sure, Bill Clinton was giving speeches and getting hundreds of thousands of dollars and sometimes millions of dollars, and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was giving these countries that paid him massive weapons deals, but there's nothing to see here, so don't even just conspiracy. Conspiracy theory. Conspiracy. <laughs> now, okay, after all this, I like to, every impeachment segment I do, I like to also give you guys other options because. I hate the idea that when I talk about this stuff, there's so many people who, no matter how clear I try to make it, so many people like will turn around and be like, Kyle's pro-Trump or some insane thing like that. And I would be lying to you guys if I said that didn't bother me. It does bother me. So I try to make clear every time I do a segment on impeachment, a way to impeach that could work. And the argument that I've made and that I'll continue to make is, if the Democrats did impeachment and it was focused on emoluments leading to genocide, Corruption leading to genocide. The case is simple. Trump takes hundreds of thousands of dollars from Saudi Arabia through his D.C. hotel. By the way, that's already illegal because Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm when he was president because the idea was, hey, maybe he could get corrupted through that business. So Trump has a hotel. It's in D.C. He's already getting paid by foreign governments. End of conversation. That's already illegal. That's already wrong. Foreign governments are influencing him. But in the case of Saudi Arabia, they pay him. He approves a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. Now, this is where people turn around and say, well, but all the other presidents did the same thing. True enough. But then is the next point. Congress says, War Powers Act, no, sorry, uh, we're not going to arm Saudi Arabia. Look at what they're doing in Yemen. We're against the U.S. aiding Saudi Arabia. And Trump vetoes it. Why did you veto that, Mr. President? Why did you veto that? Congress is concerned about a genocide going on in Yemen, and you're arming the government committing it to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. Why would you veto that? Here are co comments of you before you were president talking about how evil Saudi Arabia is, how wrong they are, how they did 9-11, how they're the extremists, how they're the problem. What happened? You flipped. You flipped, and you went the extra mile to let them continue to do a genocide as you armed them and patted them on the back. Explain that to us. So if the argument is emoluments leading to genocide, corruption leading to genocide. I think impeachment, it, he won't be removed from office because you're never going to get 20 Republicans in the Senate to remove him from office, okay? So he's not going to be removed from office. But that's an argument where in the hearings, they don't have a good counterargument. And I think if the American people heard all that uh, fleshed out in front of them, they would go, wow, look at what's going on. Look at what he's responsible for. Look at what he's doing. And I think that has a chance of hurting his approval rating, even though he's going to get exonerated. Now, in the case of what they're doing here, I think it's likely that when he gets exonerated in the Senate, if it were to get there, his approval rating would go up. So that's why I fear this path. However, there is also another possibility, which I've entertained. I think it's 
it's possible that it's true. I'm not fully convinced by it, but it's an interesting point where somebody, a professor who's predicted almost all the elections in the modern era, he explained how, no, just the fact that there is an impeachment inquiry means, and there might be an impeachment vote on the House floor, means that you could check the box of scandal for Donald Trump. And any president with a scandal is going to be politically hurt going into the next election. The details don't even matter, he says. He says just generic scandal, because people don't follow this stuff closely. They just hear the noise around it, and they assume, hey, there's smoke, there's probably fire. And the argument is, well, if they're doing an impeachment thing, there's smoke, there's got to be fire. He must have done something wrong. So that's the other argument. The other argument is just the details don't even matter. Just the fact that there's enough noise there, people will be impacted by that, and they'll look for a change. I hope that that's true. I really do, guys. I really, really do. But I do fear that the argument from the Democrats is so weak. And he's such a good counterpuncher on the Ukraine thing that I think that would hurt him. That would help him, excuse me, and hurt the Democrats. Um, but, yeah, what's interesting there is you have a professor who's an expert on this stuff explaining in no uncertain terms this is how it could unfold if it were to get to a hearing in the Senate. And basically, Trump's argument, as Mir Connors says, is just, I'm going to totally own this and say, yeah, I did it, but it was totally appropriate because I was looking for corruption because – I'm the president, and I have a right to investigate corruption. And he gave other examples of when presidents have – it would have been okay for them to talk about foreign governments, you know, investigating political opponents. So I do think that he has enough of a leg to stand on, even though I think it's total BS that he did it because he really cares about corruption. He did it because it's his political opponent. Um, but he'll make the argument strong enough and long enough where there's enough of a doubt where it would never go the way Democrats want it to go. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting take on impeachment I wanted to share with everybody. We got more Trump Saudi Arabia stuff. So as Trump is bragging on Twitter about being anti-war, the BBC reports the following. Saudi Arabia oil attack. You have to deploy thousands of extra troops. We're sending thousands of troops to Saudi Arabia to protect them from Iran. Quote, taken together with other deployments, they say, this constitutes an additional 3,000 forces that have been extended or authorized within the last month. That's from Pentagon spokesman Jonathan Hoff Hoffman. Excuse me. Um, and the U.S. has increased the deployment of forces in the region by 14,000 since May. Okay, digest that point. As Trump is literally on Twitter, same day, saying, we have to end the endless wars, in all caps, with a nice little exclamation point at the end. 14,000 troops increased in the region since May. 14,000 troops. He's so full of it. I told you, man, we're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. Even though he removed the troops from northern Syria, we're still in other parts of Syria. He's doing an economic war on Iran, pushing to actual war, He's waging an economic war on Venezuela, pushing to actual war, and seizing food shipments going into a starving country. 
drone strikes increased 432%. The guy is insanely militaristic. As he's tweeting about ending wars, same day, sending more troops to Saudi Arabia. By the way, we spoke about the polls on this. I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say only 13% of the American people, 13% are cool with sending troops for Saudi Arabia. So we're going to get in the middle of a conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Are you kidding me? I have to say, because I think it's true, personal corruption is helping lead to this decision. I told you Donald Trump has taken hundreds of thousands of dollars through his D.C. hotel from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia does these things where they send U.S. veterans to D.C. and they keep them up in the hotels and they overpay on purpose. I mean, this is, this is pay-to-play corruption. This is, hey, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. They'll continue to funnel him probably millions of dollars if he just gives them what they want in terms of policy. Remember, guys, there wasn't even a slap on the wrist for Jamal Khashoggi. Not even a slap on the wrist. Not even a slap on the wrist. So he's sitting by as they're doing a genocide in Yemen. He's sitting by as they murdered Jamal Khashoggi. He's fine with them, you know, escalating with Iran. He's doing the same thing for them, and now he's sending troops to help guard them. A move that only like 13% of Americans support. This is who he really is, by the way. This is who he really is. He flipped on things. He used to say before he was president, oh, Saudi Arabia did 9-11. You know, Saudi Arabia is a terrorist country. Now, Trump has been severely cucked, and 14,000 troops have been added to the region since May. So Donald Trump wants to fight Saudi Arabia's wars for them. happened to oh no god damn it I think I deleted a video that I didn't I needed to use alright the next story is about Fox Business but now I gotta find the clip because I accidentally deleted it so let me see if I could pull this up <coughs> when I grew up in Brooklyn my parents shut the fuck up Maria Bartiromo Okay, here we go. I found it. That was quick. That was quick. Here we go. Fox Business Network is going to concern troll about Democrats starting to not take big money. This is wonderful. And to the high-stakes money race for 2020, turns out that less is not always more when it comes to fundraising. That's why Politico reports that some Dems are flat-out spooked by Elizabeth Warren's pledge to shun big-money fundraisers if she secures the Democratic nomination. Gianno Caldwell is the author of Taking for Granted, How Conservatism Can Win Back the Americans. 
that liberalism failed. And he joins us now. Gianno, great to see you. Thank you for having me. Great seeing you. Critics saying that this is going to put the party at risk, that it's important to have donors across the board. But Elizabeth Warren is kind of drawing a line in the sand here. Yeah, that, that's been what's actually submitted her front-runner status. We think about the fact that out of all the candidates, she, being one on the far left, has been the only one who really came out with established policy plans as to what she would do if she were to become president. Now, typically speaking, a lot of candidates don't do this because they want the flexibility of a general election, but she hasn't. So thinking about the fact that she's only going to take in small-dollar uh, donors if she becomes the general election nominee should be frightening to a lot of people because you consider what happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016. She raised over $700 million uh, with all uh, kind of candidate groups, so the, the pro-Trump, not pro-Trump, pro-Clinton groups. Mm -hmm. Now, for Donald Trump in 2018, he's raised over, in 2019, he's raised over $300 million yes. alone. So that should be concerning for, for Democrats. And, and those numbers are staggering, so I want to look at them a little bit more closely. The RNC and Trump have raised over $308 million. 125 of it came in the third quarter. Five million of right. it came 24 hours in September after the impeachment inquiry issue arose. When you look at what the Democrats have, Warren's got a little less than $25 million. Even if Bernie dropped out right. and he got his, she got his $25 million, for example, they are still far, far behind. Yeah, and considering the fact that she's more of a, a candidate that favors socialism, this is only good news for Trump and Republicans. I'm sure a lot of folks uh, on the left realize that if she becomes the nominee, that is going to really clear a path for Donald Trump. Obviously, the candidate Donald Trump must work his heart out like he did in 2016 in order to win. He can't leave any vote left behind. But certainly, this is becoming a matchup that Donald Trump would love. He certainly, in my view, probably wouldn't like to uh, stand up uh, against Joe Biden when polls showing that he he could be in some trouble there. Gianna, real quick, you know, when you look at the numbers here, you talked about Warren's push uh, for socialistic policies. That kind of shows you that it doesn't work um, when you're trying to win a, win, win a race. Pardon me. Yeah, and, and most Americans, when we're talking about, you look at the polling data, and the polling data have showed that young Americans are favoring socialism, but young Americans don't really vote. That's, that's what the historic trends show us. So for those Americans that generally go to the polls, you see seniors and middle-aged people, they're very concerned about what socialism means and what it can do to our country. So a lot of people are in fear of having a candidate that could be in favor of those policies, which could really change the dynamic of our country. Jano, great to see you. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Wow. There is so much to break down here because that was an embarrassingly bad segment. He says, well, young Americans don't vote. So that's, yeah, but th that's the point. The point is to inspire them enough to get out to vote. Like, that's how you win. You win an election when not just your base shows up, but also you get non-voters to vote and independents to vote. You change the dynamic. If all the pollsters are only talking to the people who turned out to vote in the last election and the last election was a low turnout election, well, then they're mis fundamentally misreading the situation because I got another, you know, however many, 30 million more people who are ready to get out there and vote because we've inspired them. So what a terrible analysis that was. And then also I love how they can't help themselves. They, they keep saying, well, she's running on a, you know, a socialist ideology. She literally has said repeatedly, I'm a capitalist to my bones. 
So she believes in heavily regulating capitalism. That's good. But she says, I'm a capitalist in my bones, but they don't care because it's Fox News. It's Fox Business. So, flip. I don't know. Uh, socialist enough. And socialism doesn't work to win. Well, again, she's not a socialist, but if you look at all of the policies that Fox News considers socialist, minimum wage increase, Medicare for all, free college, all of them are popular. All of them are popular. So they're just wrong when they act like they're concern trolling, like, this might not work. Look out. No, maybe you're afraid it will work. <laughs> or maybe you're just too dumb and you don't think it works, but I guarantee you it will work. Um, I like how he also slips in there. Well, you know, it, I think I don't think Trump would want to go against Biden. If Trump goes against Biden, Corn Pop is going to make sure the kids hear words. And come on, man. <laughs> but he says, what does he, he says? Uh, come on, man. Hold on. I got I to gotta, I gotta pull it up. I'm like, uh, it's stuck on the tip of my tongue, but I can't get it out. Wait for it. Wait for it. Oh, fact of the matter is, <laughs> fact of the matter is, come on, man. <laughs> that's by every Biden, every the end of every sentence is, come on, man. Fact of the matter is, fact of the matter is, that's the beginning of every sentence, and the end of every sentence is, come on, man. And in between, he says stuff about like corn pop and the record players and uh, the kids hearing words. But anyway, I digress. Um, I think if it's Biden versus Trump, that's when Biden has. Uh, excuse me, that's when Trump has the best chance to win. Elizabeth Warren, I think, is a coin flip. Depends on how she runs her campaign. She possibly can beat him, but she could also lose. I think Bernie's the safe bet to beat Trump. Um, and then there's just a lot of stuff in there that's absurd. She says that He says that, oh, uh, Elizabeth Warren's the only one who has established policy plans. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Bernie's like, even more policy detailed than she is. I'm sorry, but that's just true. And also, I mean, she is more centrist than Bernie is. They would argue that's a good thing, but I think when you actually look at the specifics of the plans, his are much better and would improve many more lives. But it's just fundamentally not true to say she's the only one with policy plans. You could go on Fox Business and Fox News and just say anything, and there's no, there's no accountability. There's no anything. They just let you get away with it and then act like it was fine. Uh, and then the most important point here is, the concern trolling about the not raising big money. The idea that, like, oh, this isn't going to work. This is a big advantage for Trump. No, this is the old school political mindset, and the establishment was dead wrong about this. If raising big money is the only factor in a presidential election, well, then Hillary would already be president. She outraised Trump, but she didn't win because that's not the only factor. I mean, it is a factor, especially in congress congressional races and Senate races. That money is a giant issue because you can flood the airwaves and get your message out there, and the other person doesn't have as much money. It's so hard for anybody to even know who they are. But at the presidential level, no, it doesn't work the same way, and the money isn't the end-all, be-all. And if anything, it can actually be an advantage in today's day and age. You have to stay within within reason. Like, you know, if they're outraising you 
10 to 1, that's too much, and it's really hard, even though Alexander Ocasio-Cortez beat Joe Crowley at that number. But, you know, generally speaking, you want to stay within 5 to 1, let's say. But the power of the argument that, and if I was running for anything, I would make this point over and over until I'm blue in the face and I would hammer my opponent with it. The power of the argument, oh, I'm totally uncorrupted. All I take is small dollar donations. All I have here is teachers and construction workers and regular people, and they're donating to me because I'm going to represent them. You know who I'm bought by? The American people. You know who my opponent's bought by? Corporations and billionaires. They raise big money. They're making promises behind closed doors. I don't need to do that. I'm telling you up front exactly what I support, and that's why I'm getting the small dollar donations. That's why regular people are donating to me. I haven't taken a penny of big money. No money from any billionaires, no money from any corporations, no money from any PACs. So the power of that argument is overwhelming, guys. When you make the argument, no, I'm not playing in this corrupt, disgusting, rotten system. I'll raise less money, but I'll be able to sleep at night, and I'll be able to fight for the agenda that I'm actually pitching to you guys. I don't need public and private positions. That argument is so powerful in today's day and age that it can override a money disadvantage. Yes, there are extremes where it gets too out of whack where it wouldn't do that. But especially for a presidential election, especially if you already have a certain amount of name recognition, that can win elections. So when they act like they're concerned trolling, like this is going to hurt the Democrats. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I would keep calling out Donald Trump for lying, saying, oh, I'm so funding my campaign, but raising big money. And also, by the way, it's not true about Elizabeth Warren. She said, originally she said, I'm not going to raise big money in the primary, and then in the general I will. And then after pressure, she flipped on that, and she says, I'm not going to take uh, big money in the general either. But she comes out the next day and says, but I will raise big money for the party, for the DNC, and then they could turn around and she doesn't say the second part, but this is true. Then they could turn around and give some of that money to me. So, oh, I'm not raising big money for me, but I will raise big money for my counterparts, fellow Democrats, and for the party. Oh, there's always a but. There's always a by the way when it comes to Elizabeth Warren. You don't have that with Bernie. There's a but, there's a by the way, and then, of course, at the end of the day, it's a watered-down version of that. But bottom line is, no, it would not put the party at risk. In today's day and age, it might actually help the party if people commit, if you commit to no billionaire money, no corporate money, no, no corrupting influence. We only take small-dollar donations because we're only representing regular people. That argument is powerful. That argument wins. And they're acting like, mm, come on, you have to raise big money and be corrupted. What they're doing is fundamentally arguing for corruption. You have to raise big money, which means you have to be corrupt, which is, that's just how the system works. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the problem, and we're here to change it. Okay. Business Insider tweeted something that caught my eye. Now, the full video is about six minutes or so. Um, I'm not going to show you the whole thing, but just know the rest of it goes into the egregious wealth that um, Kylie Jenner has and that the Kardashian family has. So uh, this is a little snippet. 
it's honestly one of the most powerful arguments against our economic system that I've ever seen, and it's not even trying to be that. Watch. Around 155 million combined followers on Instagram and Twitter. Her huge social media following also brings in a hefty income for Kylie through sponsored posts. The estimated value of a single post is $1 million. She's posted ads for Quay sunglasses, Teeny Blends Detox Tea, Sugar Bear Hair Vitamins, and more. Kylie's social media is also where we can see how she spends her millions. In 2016, she purchased a 1.4-acre Hidden Hills compound, which includes a 1,300-square-foot mansion for $12 million. Over the last two years, Kylie has bought at least five other properties totaling more than $40 million. With all those properties, she definitely has the space to store all of her luxury cars. Since receiving a $225,000 black Mercedes-Benz G-Wagon for her 16th birthday, Kylie has amassed a pretty impressive luxury car collection. She's recently reported to have paid an estimated $10,000 to wrap her G-Wagon to match her $400,000 Lamborghini Aventador. When she does a promoted post on social media, it's a million dollars. She makes a million dollars off of one tweet promoting one product. So she bought a $12 million house that is literally 12 tweets or Instagram posts or Facebook, whatever. There are two things that are inescapable conclusions on, based on this story. Number one, you got to tax the rich. You got to tax them. Now, am I in favor of uh, you know taxing them so much that they're no longer rich? No, I'm fine with with people being rich. I'm fine with Kylie Jenner being rich. I mean, she got very lucky in the family she was born into, and a lot of it was kind of handed to her. But she did create her own makeup line, and she did do you know. I'm not taking away that from her. I'm not trying to you know force her to make nothing. But you got to raise taxes. And you have to believe, to one extent or another, in redistribution. Everybody does, but it's just to differing degrees. I mean, if you look at this and you don't see a problem that this exists alongside 78% of workers in this country living paycheck to paycheck, half of workers in this country making $30,000 a year or less, about 500,000 homeless people, about 50 or 60,000 homeless veterans, 500,000 people going bankrupt because they can't afford their medical bills. If you don't see the connection there, if you don't see that there's a problem that those exist simultaneously, then I don't know what to tell you. There is a problem with it, and you do need to do redistribution. You do need to tax the rich higher, and you do need to reinvest that into, into programs for the people, whether it's infrastructure projects, a job project, giving everybody health care, giving everybody higher education. I mean, you got to tax them. It's the most straightforward solution. I mean, you could radically change the economic system and totally move away from what we have now. But, you know, I don't know. I can't conceive of exactly how that would come about and what that would look like in the process to get there. What I can conceive of is raising their taxes, <laughs> raising their taxes and redistributing in a reasonable way. So that's the first point. Second point is, 
Don't tell me the meritocracy is real. Don't tell me. Now, if you're creating a system from scratch, do I agree with some having some level of meritocracy in the system? Yes. I like the idea of incentivizing uh, people to be productive. And I think everybody to some extent agrees with that. Okay, But we don't have a system that's a meritocracy. She's not working harder than, you know, a lot of the people you know, a lot of people I know. I've told the story before on air, but one of the hardest working guys I ever knew uh, in high school worked three jobs and was barely getting by. So one of the hardest working guys I've ever known, three jobs, barely getting by. We don't even have, the minimum wage in this country is not even a living wage. That exists at the same time that Kylie Jenner makes a million dollars per promoted tweet. I rest my case. I rest my case. We got to have a living wage. We got to have a living wage. If you're arguing for the status quo, you're saying, I think it's fine if somebody works full time and they still don't make enough money to get by. That's wage slavery, man. Like, that's what that is. We could try to, you know, sugarcoat it and dress it up and act like it's not that, but it is that. That's exactly what it is. We can't have a system like that, man. We just can't. You know how much she's worth, Kylie Jenner? A billion dollars. Dog, she's 22 years old. She's worth a billion dollars. These are the people who get their taxes cut. This is, by the way, Donald Trump. We, we just spoke about this. There was a study that came out the other day. Since Trump's tax bill went into effect, which was just a Bush tax cuts on steroids, the richest 400 families in the country pay 23% in taxes. The poorest 50% of this country, they pay 24%. The richest 23%, the poorest 24%. The rich now, uh, the poor now officially pay a higher tax rate than the rich. That, that's a broken system. That's a system that's rigged for the, for the rich and for corporations. That's what that is. So, listen, what separates my politics from a lot of people who might even watch and enjoy this show is that I favor simple, straightforward solutions. You know, I'm not grabbing a pitchfork. I'm not grabbing a gun. I'm not throwing her in the gulag. I'm not confiscating her wealth. But I am going to raise her taxes quite a bit. Top marginal tax rate is what, 35% now? There was a time when it was 91%. That doesn't mean the government takes 91% of all of her money, by the way. It doesn't mean that. It means that over a certain point, they tax at 91%. So every dollar over like $5 million, they tax at 91% in income. Um, but even that wasn't the effective rate. That was the nominal rate, which is just the rate on paper. The effective rate was about 43%. Do you understand how much good can be done if you just take that top marginal rate from 35% and raise it to 43% again and get rid of the loopholes and deductions? Do you realize how much good can be done, how much revenue can be raised? Do you realize how far a Wall Street transaction tax goes in funding the programs that we know we need? Do you realize how simple it is, how straightforward it is, how easy it is in, in, to, to get Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, right to a union, uh, an infrastructure deal, a Green New Deal? Do you realize how simple it is to raise the funds? 
all we got to do is stop our illegal and offensive wars, which we wasted trillions of dollars on, and raise taxes on the rich and raise taxes on Wall Street and bring back a reasonable estate tax. I mean, you want to talk about it's the Republicans who say all the time, you should have to work for everything you get, can't get lazy, can't just be lazy and get handed stuff. That's their argument against welfare. But when it comes to the do-nothing kids of super-rich parents, they say, I want them to be able to handle, hand them the $7 billion they have in the bank and have it not be taxed. She wants a spoiled kid who's done nothing in their entire life. I'm not talking about Kylie Jenner here. I'm talking about just a random, generic, spoiled, rich kid who's done nothing in his entire life. If his daddy dies, he just gets that $7 billion, no questions asked. Here's the thought. What if we just let him keep $1 billion? I'm pretty sure he would still never have to work again, and he'd be totally fine. But we'd have $6 billion to do really positive, important, good things. $6 billion. $6 billion. And that's me being kind, saying, let him keep a billion. Let him keep a billion. But say we're going to take the six, and we got stuff we got to handle. We got some kids who are starving that we're going to take care of over here. Just, just so you know, just so, there's, there's a couple kids who are starving. We're going to take care of that. I know that you want this in order to get your 13th Lamborghini and, and your second mega yacht. But we're going to pass on that. We're going to feed the kids, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Is that okay with you? So the two points are, number one, tax the rich. I'm not an unreasonable dude. We can have a debate, we can have a discussion as to where we draw the line, how much the taxes are, so on and so forth, how much money they get to keep. We can have that discussion, okay? That's a reasonable discussion to have. But what's not reasonable is to say, oh, it's good the way it is right now. No, 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 no,
it's no longer like the 1600s. We don't need to be on like a farmer's schedule. We can push it back a little bit. It's okay. So I agree with that, and maybe we should look at doing this beyond just California. And then the other thing is, and now we're looping in America's dad, Bernard Sanders, here. Bernie just told um, at the UFCW forum, union forum, he says he'd consider a 32-hour work week. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but but um, there was a time where we actually passed that. I'm not sure if it passed through the Senate or the House, but it only passed through one. I'm not sure which it was, and it was during the New Deal era. We actually passed, I believe it was a 30-hour work week, maybe 32, but I think it was 30. And um, for whatever reason, it fell through at the last minute, and there was something else that took its place. But this idea is not a crazy idea, and there are many other developed countries that have shorter work weeks than we have here in this country. So that's another thing, man. I mean, that's why I got this thing four-day work week over my shoulder. I think a lot of people would prefer that, and it also is just more reasonable in the sense that as of right now, the majority of your time is still working as an economic agent. You know, you're a, a piece of a larger machine, and you can argue that that kind of separation is really t- fundamentally takes away part of your humanity when all you do, unless you love your job. There are some people who absolutely love their job, and they, they want to do it all the time. They're in a special category, but most people, I think, don't love their jobs. So since they don't love their jobs, it's kind of wrong that they have to spend such a preposterously large chunk of their lives there grinding away. So why not, because we have the ability to do this and still be wildly productive, why not cut the work week and um, you know, still pay people appropriately and give them more of that leisure time? This leads into that thing about uh, Stephen Hawking where he said, with automation coming, we have a choice. We could either let only the billionaires and the corporations reap the benefits of it, only let the rich reap the benefits of it, or we could be reasonable and we could basically assign everybody a machine or a robot to do their job, and they get paid as a result of the work of that robot and the machine, and then you open up all this leisure time. Um, I do think we have a, you know, a crisis like that that's coming, and I don't think we're too prepared for it. And I think we're still coasting off the momentum of an older system from a a more primitive time. We no longer need to work five days a week. Um, And all this stuff is going to change very rapidly. The economy is going to change very rapidly. And the other thing is uh, we're the only developed country that doesn't have paid vacation by law. We're the only developed country that doesn't have that. So in many ways, workers in this country are just screwed. Longer work week, no paid vacation time by law. You know, there's real serious issues in this country with basic labor rights. So these are all things that we need to revisit. These are all things that we need to talk about. And um, I would like for this stuff to be as big of a part of the conversation as, um, as it is when we talk about Medicare for All now, which has taken over, and a living wage, free college. These are all ideas that have permeated uh, through, and I feel like these other ideas should also be in that conversation. So we need to kind of push them to the forefront as well. All right, and on that note, we are done, baby. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.